At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Federalist Number 70 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 70. The Executive Department Further Considered. From the Independent Journal, Saturday, March 15, 1788, Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York, There is an idea which is not without its advocates that a vigorous executive is inconsistent with the genius of republican government. The enlightened well-wishers to this species of government must at least hope that the supposition is destitute of foundation, since they can never admit its truth, without at the same time admitting the condemnation of their own principles. Energy in the executive is a leading character in the definition of good government. It is essential to the protection of the community against foreign attacks. It is not less essential to the steady administration of the laws, to the protection of property against those irregular and high-handed combinations which sometimes interrupt the ordinary course of justice, to the security of liberty against the enterprises and assaults of ambition, of faction, and of anarchy. Every man the least conversant in Roman history knows how often that republic was obliged to take refuge in the absolute power of a single man, under the formidable title of dictator, as well against the intrigues of ambitious individuals who aspired to the tyranny, and the seditions of whole classes of the community whose conduct threatened the existence of all government, as against the invasions of external enemies who menaced the conquest and destruction of Rome. There can be no need, however, to multiply arguments or examples on this head. A feeble executive implies a feeble execution of the government. A feeble execution is but another phrase for a bad execution, and a government ill-executed whatever it may be in theory, must be in practice a bad government. Taking it for granted, therefore, that all men of sense will agree in the necessity of an energetic executive, it will only remain to inquire what are the ingredients which constitute this energy. How far can they be combined with those other ingredients which constitute safety in the republican sense? And how far does this combination characterize the plan which has been reported by the Convention? The ingredients which constitute energy in the executive are, first, unity, secondly, duration, thirdly, an adequate provision for its support, 
Fourthly, competent powers. The ingredients which constitute safety in the republican sense are, first, a due dependence on the people, secondly, a due responsibility. Those politicians and statesmen who have been the most celebrated for the soundness of their principles and for the justice of their views have declared in favor of a single executive and a numerous legislature. They have, with great propriety, considered energy as the most necessary qualification of the former, and have regarded this as most applicable to power in a single hand, while they have, with equal propriety, considered the latter as best adapted to deliberation and wisdom, and best calculated to conciliate the confidence of the people, and to secure their privileges and interests. That unity is conducive to energy will not be disputed. Decision, activity, secrecy, and dispatch will generally characterize the proceedings of one man in a much more eminent degree than the proceedings of any greater number, and in proportion as the number is increased, these qualities will be diminished. This unity may be destroyed in two ways, either by vesting the power in two or more magistrates of equal dignity and authority, or by vesting it ostensibly in one man, subject, in whole or in part, to the control and cooperation of others, in the capacity of counsellors to him. Of the first, the two consuls of Rome may serve as an example. Of the last, we shall find examples in the constitutions of several of the states. New York and New Jersey, if I recollect right, are the only states which have entrusted the executive authority wholly to single men. Both these methods of destroying the unity of the executive have their partisans, but the votaries of an executive council are the most numerous. They are both liable, if not to equal, to similar objections, and may in most lights be examined in conjunction. The experience of other nations will afford little instruction on this head. As far, however, as it teaches anything, it teaches us not to be enamoured of plurality in the executive. We have seen that the Achaeans, on an experiment of two praetors, were induced to abolish one. The Roman history records many instances of mischiefs to the Republic from the dissensions between the consuls and between the military tribunes, who were at times substituted for the consuls. But it gives us no specimens of any peculiar advantages derived to the state from the circumstance of the plurality of those magistrates. That the dissensions between them were not more frequent or more fatal is a matter of astonishment until we advert to the singular position in which the Republic was almost continually placed and to the prudent policy pointed out by the circumstance of the state, and pursued by the consuls, of making a division of the government between them. The patricians engaged in a perpetual struggle with the plebeians for the preservation of their ancient authorities and dignities. The consuls, who were generally chosen out of the former body, were commonly united by the personal interests they had in the defense of the privileges of their order. In addition to this motive of union, after the arms of the Republic had considerably expanded the bounds of its empire, it became an established custom with the consuls to divide the administration between themselves by lot. 
one of them remaining at Rome to govern the city and its environs, the other taking the command in the more distant provinces. This expedient must, no doubt, have had great influence in preventing those collisions and rivalships which might otherwise have embroiled the peace of the Republic. But quitting the dim light of historical research, attaching ourselves purely to the dictates of reason and good sense, we shall discover much greater cause to reject than to approve the idea of plurality in the executive under any modification whatever. Wherever two or more persons are engaged in any common enterprise or pursuit, there is always danger of difference of opinion. If it be a public trust or office, in which they are clothed with equal dignity and authority, there is peculiar danger of personal emulation and even animosity. From either, and especially from all these causes, the most bitter dissensions are apt to spring. Whenever these happen, they lessen the respectability, weaken the authority, and distract the plans and operation of those whom they divide. If they should unfortunately assail the supreme executive magistracy of a country, consisting of a plurality of persons, they might impede or frustrate the most important measures of the government in the most critical emergencies of the state. And what is still worse, they might split the community into the most violent and irreconcilable factions, adhering differently to the different individuals who compose the magistracy. Men often oppose a thing merely because they have had no agency in planning it, or because it may have been planned by those whom they dislike. But if they had been consulted, and have happened to disapprove, opposition then becomes, in their estimation, an indispensable duty of self-love. They seem to think themselves bound in honor and by all the motives of personal infallibility to defeat the success of what has been resolved upon contrary to their sentiments. Men of upright, benevolent tempers have too many opportunities of remarking with horror to what desperate lengths this disposition is sometimes carried, and how often the great interests of society are sacrificed to the vanity, to the conceit, and to the obstinacy of individuals, who have credit enough to make their passions and their caprices interesting to mankind. Perhaps the question now before the public may, in its consequences, afford melancholy proofs of the effects of this despicable frailty, or rather detestable vice, in the human character. Upon the principles of a free government, inconveniences from the source just mentioned must necessarily be submitted to in the formation of the legislature, but it is unnecessary and therefore unwise to introduce them into the constitution of the executive. It is here, too, that they may be most pernicious. In the legislature, promptitude of decision is oftener an evil than a benefit. The differences of opinion, and the jarrings of parties in that department of the government, though they may sometimes obstruct salutary plans, yet often promote deliberation and circumspection, and serve to check excesses in the majority. When a resolution, too, is once taken, the opposition must be at an end. 
that resolution is a law, and resistance to it punishable. But no favourable circumstances palliate or atone for the disadvantages of dissension in the executive department. Here they are pure and unmixed. There is no point at which they cease to operate. They serve to embarrass and weaken the execution of the plan or measure to which they relate, from the first step to the final conclusion of it. They constantly counteract those qualities in the executive which are the most necessary ingredients in its composition, vigour and expedition, and this without any counterbalancing good. In the conduct of war, in the energy of the executive, is the bulwark of the national security. Everything would be to be apprehended from its plurality. It must be confessed that these observations apply with principal weight in the first case supposed, that is, to a plurality of magistrates of equal dignity and authority, a scheme, the advocates for which are not likely to form a numerous sect, but they apply, though not with equal, yet with considerable weight, to the project of a council, whose concurrence is made constitutionally necessary to the operations of the ostensible executive. An artful cabal in that council would be able to distract and to enervate the whole system of administration. If no such cabal should exist, the mere diversity of views and opinions would alone be sufficient to tincture the exercise of the executive authority with the spirit of habitual feebleness and dilatoriness. But one of the weightiest objections to a plurality in the executive and which lies as much against the last as the first plan is, that it tends to conceal faults and destroy responsibility. Responsibility is of two kinds, to censure and to punishment. The first is the more important of the two, especially in an elective office. Man, in public trust, will much oftener act in such a manner as to render him unworthy of being any longer trusted, than in such a manner as to make him obnoxious to legal punishment. But the multiplication of the executive adds to the difficulty of detection in either case. It often becomes impossible, amidst mutual accusations, to determine on whom the blame or the punishment of a pernicious measure, or series of pernicious measures, ought really to fall. It is shifted from one to another with so much dexterity and under such plausible appearances that the public opinion is left in suspense about the real author. The circumstances which may have led to any national miscarriage or misfortune are sometimes so complicated that, where there are a number of actors who may have had different degrees and kinds of agency, though we may clearly see upon the whole that there has been mismanagement, yet it may be impracticable to pronounce to whose account the evil which may have been incurred is truly chargeable. I was overruled by my council. The council were so divided in their opinions that it was impossible to obtain any better resolution on the point. These and similar pretexts are constantly at hand, whether true or false, and who is there that will either take the trouble or incur the odium of a strict scrutiny into the secret springs of the transaction? Should there be found a citizen zealous enough to undertake the unpromising task, 
if there happened to be collusion between the parties concerned, how easy is it to clothe the circumstances with so much ambiguity as to render it uncertain what was the precise conduct of any of those parties? In the single instance in which the governor of this state is coupled with a council, that is, in the appointment to offices, we have seen the mischiefs of it in the view now under consideration. Scandalous appointments to important offices have been made. Some cases, indeed, have been so flagrant that all parties have agreed in the impropriety of the thing. When inquiry has been made, the blame has been laid by the governor on the members of the council, who on their part have charged it upon his nomination, while the people remain altogether at a loss to determine by whose influence their interests have been committed to hands so unqualified and so manifestly improper. In tenderness to individuals, I forbear to descend to particulars. It is evident from these considerations that the plurality of the executive tends to deprive the people of the two greatest securities they can have for the faithful exercise of any delegated power. First, the restraints of public opinion, which lose their efficacy, as well on account of the division of the censure attendant on bad measures among a number, as on the account of the uncertainty on whom it ought to fall. And second, the opportunity of discovering with facility and clearness the misconduct of the persons they trust, in order either to their removal from the office or to their actual punishment in cases which admit of it. In England the king is a perpetual magistrate, and it is a maxim which has obtained for the sake of the public peace that he is unaccountable for his administration and his person sacred. Nothing, therefore, can be wiser in that kingdom than to annex to the king a constitutional council who may be responsible to the nation for the advice they give. Without this, there would be no responsibility whatever in the executive department, an idea inadmissible in a free government. But even there the king is not bound by the resolutions of his council, though they are answerable for the advice they give. He is the absolute master of his own conduct in the exercise of his office, and may observe or disregard the counsel given to him at his sole discretion. But in a republic, where every magistrate ought to be personally responsible for his behaviour in office, the reason which in the British Constitution dictates the propriety of a council, not only ceases to apply, but turns against the institution. In the monarchy of Great Britain, it furnishes a substitute for the prohibited responsibility of the chief magistrate, which serves in some degree as a hostage to the national justice for his good behavior. In the American Republic, it would serve to destroy, or would greatly diminish, the intended and necessary responsibility of the chief magistrate himself. The idea of a council to the executive, which has been so generally obtained in the state constitutions, has been derived from that maxim of republican jealousy which considers power as safer in the hands of a number of men than of a single man. If the maxim should be admitted to be applicable to the case, 
I should contend that the advantage on that side would not counterbalance the numerous disadvantages on the opposite side. But I do not think the rule at all applicable to the executive power. I clearly concur in opinion, in this particular, with a writer whom the celebrated Junius pronounces to be deep, solid, and ingenious, that the executive power is more easily confined when it is one, that it is far more safe there should be a single object for the jealousy and watchfulness of the people, and in a word, that all multiplication of the executive is rather dangerous than friendly to liberty. A little consideration will satisfy us that the species of security sought for in the multiplication of the executive is unattainable. Numbers must be so great as to render combination difficult, or they are rather a source of danger than of security. The united credit and influence of several individuals must be more formidable to liberty than the credit and influence of either of them separately. When power, therefore, is placed in the hands of so small a number of men as to admit of their interests and views being easily combined in a common enterprise by an artful leader, it becomes more liable to abuse, and more dangerous when abused, than if it be lodged in the hands of one man, who, from the very circumstance of his being alone, will be more narrowly watched and more readily suspected and who cannot unite so great a mass of influence as when he is associated with others. The decemvirs of Rome, whose name denotes their number, were more to be dreaded in their usurpation than any one of them would have been. No person would think of proposing an executive much more numerous than that body. From six to a dozen have been suggested for the number of the council. The extreme of these numbers is not too great for an easy combination, and from such a combination America would have more to fear than from the ambition of any single individual. A counsel to a magistrate, who is himself responsible for what he does, are generally nothing better than a clog upon his good intentions, are often the instruments and accomplices of his bad, and almost always a cloak to his faults. I forbear to dwell upon the subject of expense, though it be evident that if the council should be numerous enough to answer the principal end aimed at by the institution, the salaries of the members, who must be drawn from their homes to reside at the seat of government, would form an item in the catalogue of public expenditures too serious to be incurred for an object of equivocal utility. I will only add that, prior to the appearance of the Constitution, I rarely met with an intelligent man from any of the states who did not admit, as the result of experience, that the unity of the executive of this state was one of the best of the distinguishing features of our Constitution. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 70《Federalist No. 71 of the Federalist Papers》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. 
The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 71. The Duration in Office of the Executive. From the New York Packet. Tuesday, March 18th, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. Duration in office has been mentioned as the second requisite to the energy of the executive authority. This has relation to two objects, to the personal firmness of the executive magistrate in the employment of his constitutional powers, and to the stability of the system of administration which may have been adopted under his auspices. With regard to the first, it must be evident that the longer the duration in office, the greater will be the probability of obtaining so important an advantage. It is a general principle of human nature that a man will be interested in whatever he possesses in proportion to the firmness or precariousness of the tenure by which he holds it, will be less attached to what he holds by a momentary or uncertain title than to what he enjoys by a durable or certain title and, of course, will be willing to risk more for the sake of the one than for the sake of the other. This remark is not less applicable to a political privilege or honor or trust than to any article of ordinary property. The inference from it is that a man acting in the capacity of chief magistrate, under a consciousness that in a very short time he must lay down his office, will be apt to feel himself too little interested in it to hazard any material censure or perplexity, from the independent exertion of his powers, or from encountering the ill-humours, however transient, which may happen to prevail, either in a considerable part of the society itself, or even in a predominant faction in the legislative body. If the case should only be that he might lay it down, unless continued by a new choice, and if he should be desirous of being continued, his wishes, conspiring with his fears, would tend still more powerfully to corrupt his integrity or debase his fortitude. In either case, feebleness and irresolution must be the characteristics of the station. There are some who would be inclined to regard the servile pliancy of the executive to a prevailing current, either in the community or in the legislature, as its best recommendation but such men entertain very crude notions, as well of the purposes for which the government was instituted, as of the true reasons by which the public happiness may be promoted. The Republican principle demands that the deliberate sense of the community should govern the conduct of those to whom they entrust the management of their affairs, but it does not require an unqualified complacence to every sudden breeze of passion, or to every transient impulse which the people may receive from the arts of men who flatter their prejudices to betray their interests. It is a just observation that the people commonly intend the public good. This often applies to their very errors. But their good sense would despise the adulator who should pretend that they always reason right about the means of promoting it. They know from experience that they sometimes err, and the wonder is that they so seldom err as they do, beset, as they continually are, by the wiles of parasites and sycophants, by the snares of the ambitious, the avaricious, the desperate, 
by the artifices of men who possess their confidence more than they deserve it, and of those who seek to possess rather than to deserve it. When occasions present themselves, in which interests of the people are at variance with their inclinations, it is the duty of the persons whom they have appointed to be the guardians of those interests, to withstand this temporary delusion, in order to give them time and opportunity for more cool and sedate reflection. Instances might be cited in which a conduct of this kind has saved the people from very fatal consequences of their own mistakes, and has procured lasting monuments of their gratitude to the men who had courage and magnanimity enough to serve them at the peril of their displeasure. But however inclined we might be to insist upon an unbounded complacence in the executive to the inclinations of the people, we can with no propriety contend for a like complacence to the humours of the legislature. The latter may sometimes stand in opposition to the former, and at other times the people may be entirely neutral. In either supposition, it is certainly desirable that the executive should be in a situation to dare to act his own opinion with vigour and decision. The same rule which teaches the propriety of a partition between the various branches of power teaches us likewise that this partition ought to be so contrived as to render the one independent of the other. To what purpose separate the executive or the judiciary from the legislative if both the executive and the judiciary are so constituted as to be at the absolute devotion of the legislative? Such a separation must be merely nominal, and incapable of producing the ends for which it was established. It is one thing to be subordinate to the laws, and another to be dependent on the legislative body. The first comports with, the last violates, the fundamental principles of good government, and whatever may be the forms of the Constitution, unites all power in the same hands. The tendency of the legislative authority to absorb every other has been fully displayed and illustrated by examples in some preceding numbers. In governments purely republican, this tendency is almost irresistible. The representatives of the people in a popular assembly seem sometimes to fancy that they are the people themselves, and betray strong symptoms of impatience and disgust at the least sign of opposition from any other quarter, as if the exercise of its rights, by either the executive or judiciary, were a breach of their privilege and an outrage to their dignity. They often appear disposed to exert an imperious control over the other departments, and as they commonly have the people on their side, they always act with such momentum as to make it very difficult for the other members of the government to maintain the balance of the Constitution. It may perhaps be asked how the shortness of the duration in office can affect the independence of the executive on the legislature, unless the one were possessed of the power of appointing or displacing the other. One answer to this inquiry may be drawn from the principle already remarked, that is, from the slender interest a man is apt to take in a short-lived advantage, and the little inducement it affords him to expose himself, on account of it, 
to any considerable inconvenience or hazard. Another answer, perhaps more obvious, though not more conclusive, will result from the consideration of the influence of the legislative body over the people, which may be employed to prevent the re-election of a man who, by an upright resistance to any sinister project of that body, should have made himself obnoxious to its resentment. It may be asked also whether a duration of four years would answer the end proposed, and if it would not, whether a less period, which would at least be recommended by greater security against ambitious designs, would not, for that reason, be preferable to a longer period which was, at the same time, too short for the purpose of inspiring the desired firmness and independence of the magistrate. It cannot be affirmed that a duration of four years, or any other limited duration, would completely answer the end proposed, but it would contribute towards it in a degree which would have a material influence upon the spirit and character of the government. Between the commencement and termination of such a period, there would always be a considerable interval in which the prospect of annihilation would be sufficiently remote not to have an improper effect upon the conduct of a man endued with a tolerable portion of fortitude, and in which he might reasonably promise himself that there would be time enough before it arrived to make the community sensible of the propriety of the measures he might incline to pursue. Though it be probable that, as he approached the moment when the public were, by a new election, to signify their sense of his conduct, his confidence, and with it his firmness, would decline, yet both the one and the other would derive support from the opportunities which his previous continuance in the station had afforded him, of establishing himself in the esteem and goodwill of his constituents. He might, then, hazard with safety, in proportion to the proofs he had given of his wisdom and integrity, and to the title he had acquired to the respect and attachment of his fellow-citizens. As, on the one hand, a duration of four years will contribute to the firmness of the executive in a sufficient degree to render it a very valuable ingredient in the composition, so, on the other, it is not enough to justify any alarm for the public liberty. If a British House of Commons, from the most feeble beginnings, from the mere power of assenting or disagreeing to the imposition of a new tax, have, by rapid strides, reduced the prerogatives of the crown and the privileges of the nobility, within the limits they conceive to be compatible with the principles of a free government, while they raise themselves to the rank in consequence of a co-equal branch of the legislature, if they have been able, in one instance, to abolish both the royalty and the aristocracy, and to overturn all the ancient establishments, as well in the church as state, if they have been able, on a recent occasion, to make the monarch tremble at the prospect of an innovation attempted by them, what would be to be feared from an elective magistrate of four years' duration, with the confined authorities of a President of the United States? What? but that he might be unequal to the task which the Constitution assigns him. I shall only add, that if his duration be such as to leave a doubt of his firmness, 
that doubt is inconsistent with a jealousy of his encroachments. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 71 Federalist Number 72 of the Federalist Papers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 72. The Same Subject Continued and Re-Eligibility of the Executive Considered. From the Independent Journal. Wednesday, March 19, 1788. Hamilton. To the People of the State of New York. The administration of government, in its largest sense, comprehends all the operations of the body politic, whether legislative, executive, or judiciary. But in its most usual, and perhaps its most precise signification, it is limited to executive details, and falls peculiarly within the province of the executive department. The actual conduct of foreign negotiations, the preparatory plans of finance, the application and disbursement of the public monies in conformity to the general appropriations of the legislature, the arrangement of the army and navy, the directions of the operations of war, these and other matters, of a like nature, constitute what seems to be most properly understood by the administration of government. The persons, therefore, to whom immediate management these different matters are committed, ought to be considered as the assistants or deputies of the chief magistrate, and on this account they ought to derive their offices from his appointment, at least from his nomination, and ought to be subject to his superintendence. This view of the subject will at once suggest to us the intimate connection between the duration of the executive magistrate in office and the stability of the system of administration." To reverse and undo what has been done by a predecessor is very often considered by a successor as the best proof he can give of his own capacity and desert, and in addition to this propensity, where the alteration has been the result of public choice, the person substituted is warranted in supposing that the dismission of his predecessor has proceeded from a dislike to his measures, and that the less he resembles him the more he will recommend himself to the favour of his constituents. These considerations, and the influence of personal confidences and attachments, would be likely to induce every new president to promote a change of men to fill the subordinate stations, and these causes together could not fail to occasion a disgraceful and ruinous mutability in the administration of the government. With a positive duration of considerable extent, I connect the circumstance of re-eligibility. The first is necessary to give to the officer himself the inclination and the resolution to act his part well, and to the community time and leisure to observe the tendency of his measures, and thence to form an experimental estimate of their merits. The last is necessary to enable the people when they see reason to approve of his conduct, to continue him in his station, 
in order to prolong the utility of his talents and virtues, and to secure to the government the advantage of permanency in a wise system of administration. Nothing appears more plausible at first sight, nor more ill-founded upon close inspection, than a scheme which in relation to the present point has had some respectable advocates. I mean that of continuing the chief magistrate in office for a certain time, and then excluding him from it, either for a limited period or forever after. This exclusion, whether temporary or perpetual, would have nearly the same effects, and these effects would be for the most part rather pernicious than salutary. One ill effect of the exclusion would be a diminution of the inducements to good behaviour. There are few men who would not feel much less zeal in the discharge of a duty when they were conscious that the advantages of the station with which it was connected must be relinquished at a determinate period than when they were permitted to entertain a hope of obtaining, by meriting, a continuance of them. This position will not be disputed so long as it is admitted that the desire of reward is one of the strongest incentives of human conduct or that the best security for the fidelity of mankind is to make their interests coincide with their duty. Even the love of fame, the ruling passion of the noblest minds, which would prompt a man to plan and undertake extensive and arduous enterprises for the public benefit, requiring considerable time to mature and perfect them, if he could flatter himself with the prospect of being allowed to finish what he had begun, would, on the contrary, deter him from the undertaking when he foresaw that he must quit the scene before he could accomplish the work, and must commit that, together with his own reputation, to hands which might be unequal or unfriendly to the task. The most to be expected from the generality of men in such a situation is the negative merit of not doing harm, instead of the positive merit of doing good." Another ill effect of the exclusion would be the temptation to sordid views, to peculation, and in some instances to usurpation. An avaricious man, who might happen to fill the office, looking forward to a time when he must at all events yield up the emoluments he enjoyed, would feel a propensity, not easy to be resisted by such a man, to make the best use of the opportunity he enjoyed while it lasted, and might not scruple to have recourse to the most corrupt expedients to make the harvest as abundant as it was transitory, though the same man probably, with a different prospect before him, might content himself with the regular perquisites of his situation, and might even be unwilling to risk the consequences of an abuse of his opportunities. His avarice might be a guard upon his avarice, Add to this that the same man might be vain or ambitious as well as avaricious, and if he could expect to prolong his honours by his good conduct, he might hesitate to sacrifice his appetite for them to his appetite for gain. But with the prospect before him of approaching an inevitable annihilation, his avarice would be likely to get the victory over his caution, his vanity, or his ambition." An ambitious man, too, when he found himself seated on the summit of his country's honours, when he looked forward to the time at which he must descend from the exalted eminence for ever, 
and reflected that no exertion of merit on his part could save him from the unwelcome reverse, such a man, in such a situation, would be much more violently tempted to embrace a favourable conjuncture for attempting the prolongation of his power, at every personal hazard, than if he had the probability of answering the same end by doing his duty. Would it promote the peace of the community, or the stability of the government, to have half a dozen men who had had credit enough to be raised to the seat of the supreme magistracy, wandering among the people like discontented ghosts, and sighing for a place which they were destined never more to possess? A third ill effect of the exclusion would be the depriving the community of the advantage of the experience gained by the chief magistrate in the exercise of his office. That experience is the parent of wisdom, is an adage the truth of which is recognized by the wisest as well as the simplest of mankind. What more desirable or more essential than this quality in the governors of nations? Where more desirable or more essential than in the first magistrate of a nation? Can it be wise to put this desirable and essential quality under the ban of the Constitution, and to declare that the moment it is acquired, its possessor shall be compelled to abandon the station in which it was acquired, and to which it is adapted? This, nevertheless, is the precise import of all those regulations which exclude men from serving their country, by the choice of their fellow-citizens, after they have by a course of service fitted themselves for doing it with a greater degree of utility. A fourth ill effect of the exclusion would be the banishing men from stations in which, in certain emergencies of the state, their presence might be of the greatest moment to the public interest or safety. There is no nation which has not, at one period or another, experienced an absolute necessity of the services of particular men in particular situations. Perhaps it would not be too strong to say, to the preservation of its political existence. How unwise, therefore, must be every such self-denying ordinance as serves to prohibit a nation from making use of its own citizens in the manner best suited to its exigencies and circumstances. Without opposing the personal essentiality of the man, it is evident that a change of the chief magistrate, at the breaking out of a war, or at any similar crisis for another even of equal merit, would at all times be detrimental to the community, inasmuch as it would substitute inexperience to experience and would tend to unhinge and set afloat the already settled train of the administration. A fifth ill effect of the exclusion would be that it would operate as a constitutional interdiction of stability in the administration. By necessitating a change of men in the first office of the nation, it would necessitate a mutability of measures. It is not generally to be expected that men will vary and measures remain uniform. The contrary is the usual course of things, and we need not be apprehensive that there will be too much stability, while there is even the option of changing, nor need we desire to prohibit the people from continuing their confidence where they think it may be safely placed, and where, by constancy on their part, 
they may obviate the fatal inconveniences of fluctuating councils and a variable policy. These are some of the disadvantages which would flow from the principle of exclusion. They apply most forcibly to the scheme of a perpetual exclusion, but when we consider that even a partial exclusion would always render the readmission of the person a remote and precarious object, the observations which have been made will apply nearly as fully to one case as to the other. What are the advantages promised to counterbalance these disadvantages? They are represented to be, first, greater independence in the magistrate, second, greater security to the people. Unless the exclusion be perpetual, there will be no pretense to infer the first advantage. But even in that case, may he have no object beyond his present station to which he may sacrifice his independence? May he have no connections, no friends, for whom he may sacrifice it? May he not be less willing by a firm conduct to make personal enemies when he acts under the impression that a time is fast approaching, on the arrival of which he not only may, but must, be exposed to their resentments, upon an equal, perhaps upon an inferior footing? It is not an easy point to determine whether his independence would be most promoted or impaired by such an arrangement. As to the second supposed advantage, there is still greater reason to entertain doubts concerning it. If the exclusion were to be perpetual, a man of irregular ambition, of whom alone there could be reason in any case to entertain apprehension, would, with infinite reluctance, yield to the necessity of taking his leave forever of a post in which his passion for power and pre-eminence had acquired the force of habit. And if he had been fortunate or adroit enough to conciliate the good will of the people, he might induce them to consider as a very odious and unjustifiable restraint upon themselves a provision which was calculated to debar them of the right of giving a fresh proof of their attachment to a favourite. There may be conceived circumstances in which this disgust of the people, seconding the thwarted ambition of such a favourite, might occasion greater danger to liberty than could ever reasonably be dreaded from the possibility of a perpetuation in office by the voluntary suffrages of the community exercising a constitutional privilege. There is an excess of refinement in the idea of disabling the people to continue in office men who had entitled themselves, in their opinion, to approbation and confidence, the advantages of which are at best speculative and equivocal, and are overbalanced by disadvantages far more certain and decisive. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 72《Number 73 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 73. THE PROVISION FOR THE SUPPORT OF THE EXECUTIVE AND THE VETO POWER From the New York Packet, 
Friday, March 21st, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. The third ingredient towards constituting the vigor of the executive authority is an adequate provision for its support. It is evident that, without proper attention to this article, the separation of the executive from the legislative department would be merely nominal and nugatory. The legislature, with a discretionary power over the salary and emoluments of the chief magistrate, could render him as obsequious to their will as they might think proper to make him. They might, in most cases, either reduce him by famine or tempt him by largesses to surrender at discretion his judgment to their inclinations. These expressions, taken in all the latitude of the terms, would no doubt convey more than is intended. There are men who could neither be distressed nor won into a sacrifice of their duty, but this stern virtue is the growth of few soils, and in the main it will be found that a power over a man's support is a power over his will. If it were necessary to confirm so plain a truth by facts, examples would not be wanting, even in this country, of the intimidation or seduction of the executive by the terrors or allurements of the pecuniary arrangements of the legislative body. It is not easy, therefore, to commend too highly the judicious attention which has been paid to this subject in the proposed Constitution. It is there provided that the President of the United States shall, at stated times, receive for his services a compensation which shall neither be increased nor diminished during the period for which he shall have been elected, and he shall not receive within that period any other emolument from the United States or any of them. It is impossible to imagine any provision which would have been more eligible than this. The legislature, on the appointment of a president, is once for all to declare what shall be the compensation for his services during the time for which he shall have been elected. This done, they will have no power to alter it, either by increase or diminution, till a new period of service by a new election commences. They can neither weaken his fortitude by operating on his necessities, nor corrupt his integrity by appealing to his avarice. Neither the Union, nor any of its members, will be at liberty to give, nor will he be at liberty to receive, any other emolument than that which may have been determined by the first act. He can, of course, have no pecuniary inducement to renounce or desert the independence intended for him by the Constitution. The last of the requisites to energy which have been enumerated are competent powers. Let us proceed to consider those which are proposed to be vested in the President of the United States. The first thing that offers itself to our observation is the qualified negative of the President upon the acts or resolutions of the two houses of the legislature, or, in other words, his power of returning all bills with objections, to have the effect of preventing their becoming laws, unless they should afterwards be ratified by two-thirds of each of the component members of the legislative body. The propensity of the legislative department to intrude upon the rights, and to absorb the powers of the other departments, has been already suggested and repeated. The insufficiency of a mere parchment delineation of the boundaries of each has also been remarked upon. 
and the necessity of furnishing each with constitutional arms for its own defence has been inferred and proved from these clear and indubitable principles results the propriety of a negative either absolute or qualified in the executive upon the acts of the legislative branches without the one or the other the former would be absolutely unable to defend himself against the depredations of the latter he might gradually be stripped of his authorities by successive resolutions or annihilated by a single vote and in the one mode or the other the legislative and executive powers might speedily come to be blended in the same hands if even no propensity had ever discovered itself in the legislative body to invade the rights of the executive the rules of just reasoning and theoretic propriety would of themselves teach us that the one ought not to be left to the mercy of the other but ought to possess a constitutional and effectual power of self-defence but the power in question has a further use it not only serves as a shield to the executive but it furnishes an additional security against the inaction of improper laws it establishes a salutary check upon the legislative body calculated to guard the community against the effects of faction precipitancy or of any impulse unfriendly to the public good which may happen to influence a majority of that body the propriety of a negative has upon some occasions been combated by an observation that it was not to be presumed a single man would possess more virtue and wisdom than a number of men and that unless this presumption should be entertained it would be improper to give the executive magistrate any species of control over the legislative body but this observation when examined will appear rather specious than solid the propriety of the thing does not turn upon the supposition of superior wisdom or virtue in the executive but upon the supposition that the legislature will not be infallible that the love of power may sometimes betray it into a disposition to encroach upon the rights of other members of the government that a spirit of faction may sometimes pervert its deliberations that impressions of the moment may sometimes hurry it into measures which itself on maturer reflection would condemn the primary inducement to conferring the power in question upon the executive is to enable him to defend himself the secondary one is to increase the chances in favor of the community against the passing of bad laws through haste inadvertence or design the oftener the measure is brought under examination the greater the diversity in the situations of those who are to examine it the less must be the danger of those errors which flow from want of due deliberation or of those missteps which proceed from the contagion of some common passion or interest it is far less probable that culpable views of any kind should infect all the parts of the government at the same moment and in relation to the same object than that they should by turns govern and mislead every one of them it may perhaps be said that the power of preventing bad laws includes that of preventing good ones and may be used to the one purpose as well as to the other 
but this objection will have little weight with those who can properly estimate the mischiefs of that inconstancy and mutability in the laws which form the greatest blemish in the character and genius of our governments they will consider every institution calculated to restrain the excess of law-making and to keep things in the same state in which they happen to be at any given period as much more likely to do good than harm because it is favourable to greater stability in the system of legislation the injury which may possibly be done by defeating a few good laws will be amply compensated by the advantage of preventing a number of bad ones nor is this all the superior weight and influence of the legislative body in a free government and the hazard to the executive in a trial of strength with that body afford a satisfactory security that the negative would generally be employed with great caution and there would oftener be room for a charge of timidity than of rashness in the exercise of it a king of great britain with all his train of sovereign attributes and with all the influence he draws from a thousand sources would at this day hesitate to put a negative upon the joint resolutions of the two houses of parliament he would not fail to exert the utmost resources of that influence to strangle a measure disagreeable to him in its progress to the throne to avoid being reduced to the dilemma of permitting it to take effect or of risking the displeasure of the nation by an opposition to the sense of the legislative body nor is it probable that he would ultimately venture to exert his prerogatives but in a case of manifest propriety or extreme necessity all well-informed men in that kingdom will accede to the justness of this remark a very considerable period has elapsed since the negative of the crown has been exercised if a magistrate so powerful and so well fortified as a british monarch would have scruples about the exercise of the power under consideration how much greater caution may be reasonably expected in a president of the united states clothed for the short period of four years with the executive authority of a government wholly and purely republican it is evident that there would be greater danger of his not using his power when necessary than of his using it too often or too much an argument indeed against its expediency has been drawn from this very source it has been represented on this account as a power odious in appearance useless in practice but it will not follow that because it might be rarely exercised it would never be exercised in the case for which it is chiefly designed that of an immediate attack upon the constitutional rights of the executive or in a case in which the public good was evidently and palpably sacrificed a man of tolerable firmness would avail himself of his constitutional means of defence and would listen to the admonitions of duty and responsibility in the former supposition his fortitude would be stimulated by his immediate interest in the power of his office in the latter by the probability of the sanction of his constituents who though they would naturally incline to the legislative body in a doubtful case would hardly suffer their partiality to delude them in a very plain case i speak now with an eye to a magistrate possessing only a common share of firmness 
there are men who, under any circumstances, will have the courage to do their duty at every hazard. But the Convention have pursued a mean in this business, which will both facilitate the exercise of the power vested in this respect in the executive magistrate, and will make its efficacy to depend on the sense of a considerable part of the legislative body. Instead of an absolute negative, it is proposed to give the executive the qualified negative already described. This is a power which would be much more readily exercised than the other, a man who might be afraid to defeat a law by his single veto, might not scruple to return it for reconsideration, subject to being finally rejected only in the event of more than one-third of each house concurring in the sufficiency of his objections. He would be encouraged by the reflection that if his opposition should prevail, it would embark in it a very respectable proportion of the legislative body, whose influence would be united with his in supporting the propriety of his conduct in the public opinion. A direct and categorical negative has something in the appearance of it more harsh, and more apt to irritate, than the mere suggestion of argumentative objections to be approved or disapproved by those to whom they are addressed. In proportion as it would be less apt to offend, it would be more apt to be exercised and for this very reason it may in practice be found more effectual. It is to be hoped that it will not often happen, that improper views will govern so large a proportion as two-thirds of both branches of the legislature at the same time, and this too in spite of the counterposing weight of the executive. It is at any rate far less probable that this should be the case, than that such views should taint the resolutions and conducts of a bare majority. A power of this nature in the executive will often have a silent and unperceived, though forcible, operation. When men, engaged in unjustifiable pursuits, are aware that obstructions may come from a quarter which they cannot control, they will often be restrained by the bare apprehension of opposition, from doing what they would with eagerness rush into, if no such external impediments were to be feared. This qualified negative, as has been elsewhere remarked, is in this state vested in a council, consisting of the governor, with the chancellor and judges of the Supreme Court, or any two of them. It has been freely employed upon a variety of occasions, and frequently with success and its utility has become apparent, that persons who, in compiling the Constitution, were violent opposers of it, have from experience become its declared admirers. I have in another place remarked that the Convention, in the formation of this part of their plan, had departed from the model of the Constitution of this State in favor of that of Massachusetts. Two strong reasons may be imagined for this preference. One is that the judges, who are to be the interpreters of the law, might receive an improper bias from having given a previous opinion in their revisionary capacities. The other is that by being often associated with the executive, they might be induced to embark too far in the political views of that magistrate, and thus a dangerous combination might by degrees be cemented between the executive and judiciary departments. 
it is impossible to keep the judges too distinct from every other avocation than that of expounding the laws. It is peculiarly dangerous to place them in a situation to be either corrupted or influenced by the executive. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 73《Federalist Number 74 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 74. The command of the military and naval forces, and the pardoning power of the executive. From the New York Packet, Tuesday, March 25, 1788, Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. The President of the United States is to be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. The propriety of this provision is so evident in itself, and it is at the same time so consonant to the precedents of the state constitutions in general, that little need be said to explain or enforce it. Even those of them which have, in other respects, coupled the chief magistrate with a council, have for the most part concentrated the military authority in him alone. Of all the cares or concerns of government, the direction of war most peculiarly demands those qualities which distinguish the exercise of power by a single hand. The direction of war implies the direction of the common strength, and the power of directing and employing the common strength forms a usual and essential part in the definition of the executive authority. The President may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective officers. This I consider as a mere redundancy in the plan, as the right for which it provides would result of itself from the office. He is also to be authorized to grant reprieves and pardons for offences against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. Humanity and good policy conspire to dictate that the benign prerogative of pardoning should be as little as possible fettered or embarrassed. The criminal code of every country partakes so much of necessary severity that without an easy access to exceptions in favour of unfortunate guilt, justice would wear a countenance too sanguinary and cruel. As the sense of responsibility is always strongest in proportion as it is undivided, it may be inferred that a single man would be most ready to attend to the force of those motives which might plead for a mitigation of the rigour of the law, and least apt to yield to considerations which were calculated to shelter a fit object of its vengeance. The reflection that the fate of a fellow-creature depended on his sole fiat would naturally inspire scrupulousness and caution. The dread of being accused of weakness or connivance would beget equal circumspection, though of a different kind. 
On the other hand, as men generally derive confidence from their numbers, they might often encourage each other in an act of obduracy, and might be less sensible to the apprehension of suspicion or censure for an injudicious or affected clemency. On these accounts, one man appears to be a more eligible dispenser of the mercy of government than a body of men. The expediency of vesting the power of pardoning in the President has, if I mistake not, been only contested in relation to the crime of treason. This, it has been urged, ought to have depended upon the assent of one, or both, of the branches of the legislative body. I shall not deny that there are strong reasons to be assigned for requiring in this particular the concurrence of that body, or of a part of it. As treason is a crime levelled at the immediate being of the society, when the laws have once ascertained the guilt of the offender, there seems a fitness in referring the expediency of an act of mercy towards him to the judgment of the legislature. And this ought the rather to be the case, as the supposition of the connivance of the chief magistrate ought not to be entirely excluded. But there are also strong objections to such a plan. It is not to be doubted that a single man of prudence and good sense is better fitted, in delicate conjunctures, to balance the motives which may plead for and against the remission of the punishment, than any numerous body whatever. It deserves particular attention that treason will often be connected with seditions which embrace a large proportion of the community, as lately happened in Massachusetts. In every such case, we might expect to see the representation of the people tainted with the same spirit which had given birth to the offence. And when parties were pretty equally matched, the secret sympathy of the friends and favourers of the condemned person, availing itself of the good nature and weakness of others, might frequently bestow impunity where the terror of an example was necessary. On the other hand, when the sedition had proceeded from causes which had inflamed the resentments of the major party, they might often be found obstinate and inexorable when policy demanded a conduct of forbearance and clemency. But the principal argument for reposing the power of pardoning, in this case to the chief magistrate, is this. In seasons of insurrection or rebellion, there are often critical moments when a well-timed offer of pardon to the insurgents or rebels may restore the tranquillity of the commonwealth, and which, if suffered to pass unimproved, it may never be possible afterwards to recall. The dilatory process of convening the legislature or one of its branches for the purpose of obtaining its sanction to the measure would frequently be the occasion of letting slip the golden opportunity. The loss of a week, a day, an hour, may sometimes be fatal. If it should be observed that a discretionary power, with a view to such contingencies, might be occasionally conferred upon the President, it may be answered in the first place that it is questionable whether, in a limited constitution, that power could be delegated by law, and in the second place, that it would generally be impolitic beforehand to take any step which might hold out the prospect of impunity. A proceeding of this kind, out of the usual course, would be likely to be construed into an argument of timidity or of weakness, 
and would have a tendency to embolden guilt. Signed Publius. End of Federalist Number Seventy Four. Federalist Number Seventy Five of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 75, The Treaty-Making Power of the Executive. For the Independent Journal, Wednesday, March 26, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York, the President is to have power, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the Senators present concur. Though this provision has been assailed on different grounds with no small degree of vehemence, I scruple not to declare my firm persuasion that it is one of the best digested and most unexceptionable parts of the plan. One ground of objection is the trite topic of the intermixture of powers, some contending that the President ought alone to possess the power of making treaties, others that it ought to have been exclusively deposited in the Senate. Another source of objection is derived from the small number of persons by whom a treaty may be made. Of those who espouse this objection, a part are of the opinion that the House of Representatives ought to have been associated in the business, while another part seemed to think that nothing more was necessary than to have substituted two-thirds of all the members of the Senate to two-thirds of the members present. As I flatter myself, the observations made in a preceding number upon this part of the plan must have sufficed to place it, to a discerning eye, in a very favourable light, I shall here content myself with offering only some supplementary remarks, principally with a view to the objections which have just been stated. With regard to the intermixture of powers, I shall rely upon the explanations already given in other places of the true sense of the rule upon which that objection is founded, and shall take it for granted, as an inference from them, that the union of the executive with the Senate in the article of treaties, is no infringement of that rule. I venture to add that the particular nature of the power of making treaties indicates a peculiar propriety in that union. Though several writers on the subject of government place that power in the class of executive authorities, yet this is evidently an arbitrary disposition, for if we attend carefully to its operation, it will be found to partake more of the legislative than of the executive character, though it does not seem strictly to fall within the definition of either of them. The essence of the legislative authority is to enact laws, or, in other words, to prescribe rules for the regulation of the society, while the execution of the laws and the employment of the common strength, either for this purpose or for the common defense, seem to comprise all the functions of the executive magistrate. The power of making treaties is, plainly, neither the one nor the other. 
it relates neither to the execution of the subsisting laws nor to the enaction of new ones, and still less to an exertion of the common strength. Its objects are contracts with foreign nations, which have the force of law, but derive it from the obligations of good faith. They are not rules prescribed by the sovereign to the subject, but agreements between sovereign and sovereign. The power in question seems therefore to form a distinct department, and to belong properly neither to the legislative nor to the executive. The equalities elsewhere detailed as indispensable in the management of foreign negotiations point out the executive as the most fit agent in those transactions, while the vast importance of the trust, and the operation of treaties as laws, pleads strongly for the participation of the whole or a portion of the legislative body in the office of making them. However proper or safe it may be in governments where the executive magistrate is an hereditary monarch, to commit to him the entire power of making treaties, it would be utterly unsafe and improper to entrust that power to an elective magistrate of four years' duration. It has been remarked upon another occasion, and the remark is unquestionably just, that an hereditary monarch, though often the oppressor of his people, has personally too much stake in the government to be in any material danger of being corrupted by foreign powers. But a man raised from the station of a private citizen to the rank of chief magistrate, possessed of a moderate or slender fortune, and looking forward to a period not very remote when he may probably be obliged to return to the station from which he was taken, might sometimes be under temptations to sacrifice his duty to his interest, which it would require superlative virtue to withstand. An avaricious man might be tempted to betray the interest of the state to the acquisition of wealth. An ambitious man might make his own aggrandizement, by the aid of a foreign power, the price of his treachery to his constituents. The history of human conduct does not warrant that exalted opinion of human virtue which would make it wise in a nation to commit interests of so delicate and momentous a kind as those which concern its intercourse with the rest of the world to the sole disposal of a magistrate created and circumstanced as would be a President of the United States. To have entrusted the power of making treaties to the Senate alone would have been to relinquish the benefits of the constitutional agency of the President in the conduct of foreign negotiations. It is true that the Senate would, in that case, have the option of employing him in this capacity, but they would also have the option of letting it alone, and pique or cabal might induce the latter rather than the former. Besides this, the ministerial servant of the Senate could not be expected to enjoy the confidence and respect of foreign powers in the same degree with the constitutional representatives of the nation, and, of course, would not be able to act with an equal degree of weight or efficacy. While the Union would, from this cause, lose a considerable advantage in the management of its external concerns, the people would lose the additional security which would result from the cooperation of the executive. 
though it would be imprudent to confide in him solely so important a trust, yet it cannot be doubted that his participation would materially add to the safety of the society. It must indeed be clear to a demonstration that the joint possession of the power in question, by the President and Senate, would afford a greater prospect of security than the separate possession of it by either of them. And whoever has maturely weighed the circumstances which must concur in the appointment of a President, will be satisfied that the office will always bid fair to be filled by men of such characters as to render their concurrence in the formation of treaties peculiarly desirable, as well on the score of wisdom as on that of integrity. The remarks made in a former number, which have been alluded to in another part of this paper, will apply with conclusive force against the admission of the House of Representatives to a share in the formation of treaties. The fluctuating, and, taking its future increase into the account, the multitudinous composition of that body, forbid us to expect in it those qualities which are essential to the proper execution of such a trust. Accurate and comprehensive knowledge of foreign politics, a steady and systematic adherence to the same views, a nice and uniform sensibility to national character, decision, secrecy, and dispatch are incompatible with the genius of a body so variable and so numerous. The very complication of the business, by introducing a necessity of the concurrence of so many different bodies, would of itself afford a solid objection. The greater frequency of the calls upon the House of Representatives, and the greater length of time which it would often be necessary to keep them together when convened, to obtain their sanction in the progressive stages of a treaty, would be a source of so great inconvenience and expense as alone ought to condemn the project. The only objection which remains to be canvassed is that which would substitute the proportion of two-thirds of all the members composing the senatorial body to that of two-thirds of the members present. It has been shown, under the second head of our inquiries, that all provisions which require more than the majority of any body to its resolutions have a direct tendency to embarrass the operations of the government, and an indirect one to subject the sense of the majority to that of the minority. This consideration seems sufficient to determine our opinion that the Convention have gone as far in the endeavour to secure the advantage of numbers in the formation of treaties as could have been reconciled either with the activity of the public councils or with a reasonable regard to the major sense of the community. If two-thirds of the whole number of members had been required, it would in many cases, from the non-attendance of a part, amount in practice to a necessity of unanimity. And the history of every political establishment in which this principle has prevailed is a history of impotence, perplexity, and disorder. Proofs of this position might be adduced from the examples of the Roman tribuneship, the Polish diet, and the states-general of the Netherlands, did not an example at home render foreign precedents unnecessary. To require a fixed proportion of the whole body would not, in all probability, 
contribute to the advantage of a numerous agency better than merely to require a proportion of the attending members the former by making a determinate number at all times requisite to a resolution diminishes the motives to punctual attendance the latter by making the capacity of the body to depend on a proportion which may be varied by the absence or presence of a single member has the contrary effect and as by promoting punctuality it tends to keep the body complete there is great likelihood that its resolutions would generally be dictated by as great a number in this case as in the other while there would be much fewer occasions of delay it ought not to be forgotten that under the existing confederation two members may and usually do represent a state whence it happens that congress who now are solely invested with all the powers of the union rarely consist of a greater number of persons than would compose the intended senate if we add to this that as the members vote by states and that where there is only a single member present from a state his vote is lost it will justify a supposition that the active voices in the senate where the members are to vote individually would rarely fall short in number of the active voices in the existing congress when in addition to these considerations we take into view the cooperation of the president we shall not hesitate to infer that the people of america would have greater security against an improper use of the power of making treaties under the new constitution than they now enjoy under the confederation and when we proceed still one step further and look forward to the probable augmentation of the senate by the erection of new states we shall not only perceive ample ground of confidence in the sufficiency of the members to whose agency that power will be entrusted but we shall probably be led to conclude that a body more numerous than the senate would be likely to become would be very little fit for the proper discharge of the trust signed publius End of Federalist Number 75federalist number 76 of the federalist papers this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina the federalist papers by alexander hamilton john jay and james madison federalist number 76 the appointing power of the executive from the New York Packet, Tuesday, April 1st, 1788, Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York, the President is to nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not otherwise provided for in the Constitution. But the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the President alone, or in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. The President shall have power to fill up all vacancies which may happen during the recess of the Senate, 
by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. It has been observed in a former paper that the true test of a good government is its aptitude and tendency to produce a good administration. If the justness of this observation be admitted, the mode of appointing the officers of the United States contained in the foregoing clauses must, when examined, be allowed to be entitled to particular commendation. It is not easy to conceive a plan better calculated than this to promote a judicious choice of men for filling the offices of the Union, and it will not need proof that on this point must essentially depend the character of its administration. It will be agreed on all hands that the power of appointment in ordinary cases ought to be modified in one of three ways. It ought either to be vested in a single man, or in a select assembly of a moderate number, or in a single man with the concurrence of such an assembly. The exercise of it by the people at large will be readily admitted to be impracticable, as waiving every other consideration it would leave them little time to do anything else. When, therefore, mention is made in the subsequent reasonings of an assembly or body of men, what is said must be understood to relate to a select body or assembly of the description already given. The people collectively, from their number and from their dispersed situation, cannot be regulated in their movements by that systematic spirit of cabal and intrigue, which will be urged as the chief objections to reposing the power in question in a body of men. Those who have themselves reflected upon the subject, or who have attended to the observations made in other parts of these papers, in relation to the appointment of the President, will, I presume, agree to the position that there would always be great probability of having the place supplied by a man of abilities, at least respectable. Premising this, I proceed to lay it down as a rule that one man of discernment is better fitted to analyze and estimate the peculiar qualities adapted to particular offices than a body of men of equal, or perhaps even of superior, discernment. The sole and undivided responsibility of one man will naturally beget a livelier sense of duty and a more exact regard to reputation. He will, on this account, feel himself under stronger obligations, and more interested to investigate with care the qualities requisite to the stations to be filled, and to prefer with impartiality the persons who may have the fairest pretensions to them. He will have fewer personal attachments to gratify than a body of men who may each be supposed to have an equal number, and will be so much the less liable to be misled by the sentiments of friendship and of affection. A single well-directed man, by a single understanding, cannot be distracted and warped by that diversity of views, feelings, and interests, which frequently distract and warp the resolutions of a collective body. There is nothing so apt to agitate the passions of mankind as personal considerations, whether they relate to ourselves or to others, who are to be the objects of our choice or preference. Hence, in every exercise of the power of appointing to offices, 
by an assembly of men we must expect to see a full display of all the private and party likings and dislikes partialities and antipathies attachments and animosities which are felt by those who compose the assembly the choice which may at any time happen to be made under such circumstances will of course be the result either of a victory gained by one party over the other or of a compromise between the parties in either case the intrinsic merit of the candidate will be too often out of sight in the first the qualifications best adapted to uniting the suffrages of the party will be more considered than those which fit the person for the station in the last the coalition will commonly turn upon some interested equivalent give us the man we wish for this office and you shall have the one you wish for that this will be the usual condition of the bargain and it will rarely happen that the advancement of the public service will be the primary object either of party victories or of party negotiations the truth of the principles here advanced seems to have been felt by the most intelligent of those who have found fault with the provision made in this respect by the convention they contend that the president ought solely to have been authorized to make the appointments under the federal government but it is easy to show that every advantage to be expected from such an arrangement would in substance be derived from the power of nomination which is proposed to be conferred upon him while several disadvantages which might attend the absolute power of appointment in the hands of that officer would be avoided in the act of nomination his judgment alone would be exercised and as it would be his sole duty to point out the man who with the approbation of the senate should fill an office his responsibility would be as complete as if he were to make the final appointment there can in this view be no difference between nominating and appointing the same motives which would influence a proper discharge of his duty in one case would exist in the other and as no man could be appointed but on his previous nomination every man who might be appointed would be in fact his choice but might not his nomination be overruled i grant it might yet this could only be to make place for another nomination by himself the person ultimately appointed must be the object of his preference though perhaps not in the first degree it is also not very probable that his nomination would often be overruled the senate could not be tempted by the preference they might feel to another to reject the one proposed because they could not assure themselves that the person they might wish would be brought forward by a second or by any subsequent nomination they could not even be certain that a future nomination would present a candidate in any degree more acceptable to them and as their dissent might cast a kind of stigma upon the individual rejected and might have the appearance of a reflection upon the judgment of the chief magistrate it is not likely that their sanction would often be refused where there were not special and strong reasons for the refusal to what purpose then require the cooperation of the senate i answer that the necessity of their concurrence would have a powerful though in general a silent operation 
it would be an excellent check upon a spirit of favoritism in the president and would tend greatly to prevent the appointment of unfit characters from state prejudice from family connection from personal attachment or from a view to popularity in addition to this it would be an efficacious source of stability in the administration it will readily be comprehended that a man who had himself the sole disposition of offices would be governed much more by his private inclinations and interests than when he was bound to submit the propriety of his choice to the discussion and determination of a different and independent body, and that body an entire branch of the legislature. The possibility of rejection would be a strong motive to care in proposing. The danger to his own reputation, and in the case of an elective magistrate, to his political existence, from betraying a spirit of favoritism or an unbecoming pursuit of popularity, to the observation of a body whose opinion would have great weight in forming that of the public, could not fail to operate as a barrier to the one and to the other. He would be both ashamed and afraid to bring forward, for the most distinguished or lucrative stations, candidates who had no other merit than that of coming from the same state to which he particularly belonged, or of being in some way or other personally allied to him or of possessing the necessary insignificance and pliancy to render them the obsequious instruments of his pleasure. To this reasoning it has been objected that the President, by the influence of the power of nomination, may secure the complacence of the Senate to his views. This supposition of universal venality in human nature is little less an error in political reasoning than the supposition of universal rectitude. The institution of delegated power implies that there is a portion of virtue and honor among mankind which may be a reasonable foundation of confidence, and experience justifies the theory. It has been found to exist in the most corrupt periods of the most corrupt governments. The venality of the British House of Commons has been long a topic of accusation against that body, in the country to which they belong, as well as in this, and it cannot be doubted that the charge is, to a considerable extent, well founded, but it is as little to be doubted that there is always a large proportion of the body which consists of independent and public-spirited men who have an influential weight in the councils of the nation. Hence it is, the present reign not excepted, that the sense of that body is often seen to control the inclinations of the monarch, both with regard to men and to measures. Though it might therefore be allowable to suppose that the executive might occasionally influence some individuals in the Senate, yet the supposition that he could in general purchase the integrity of the whole body would be forced and improbable. A man disposed to view human nature as it is, without either flattering its virtues or exaggerating its vices, will see sufficient ground of confidence in the probity of the Senate, to rest satisfied not only that it will be impracticable to the executive to corrupt or seduce a majority of its members, but that the necessity of its cooperation in the business of appointments, 
will be a considerable and salutary restraint upon the conduct of that magistrate. Nor is the integrity of the Senate the only reliance. The Constitution has provided some important guards against the danger of executive influence upon the legislative body. It declares that, no senator or representative shall, during the time for which he was elected, be appointed to any civil office under the United States which shall have been created, or the emoluments whereof shall have been increased, during such time, and no person, holding any office under the United States, shall be a member of either House during his continuance in office. Signed, Publius End of Federalist Number 76federalist number 77 of the federalist papers this is the librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina the federalist papers by alexander hamilton john jay and james madison federalist number 77 the appointing power continued, and other powers of the executive considered. From the Independent Journal, Wednesday, April 2nd, 1788, Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. It has been mentioned as one of the advantages to be expected from the cooperation of the Senate in the business of appointments that it would contribute to the stability of the administration. The consent of that body would be necessary to displace as well as to appoint. A change of the chief magistrate, therefore, would not occasion so violent or so general a revolution in the officers of the government as might be expected if he were the sole disposer of offices. Where a man in any station had given satisfactory evidence of his fitness for it, a new president would be restrained from attempting a change in favor of a person more agreeable to him, by the apprehension that a discountenance of the Senate might frustrate the attempt, and bring some degree of discredit upon himself. Those who can best estimate the value of a steady administration will be most disposed to prize a provision which connects the official existence of public men with the approbation or disapprobation of that body which, from the greater permanency of its own composition, will in all probability be less subject to inconstancy than any other member of the government. To this union of the Senate with the President, in the article of appointments, it has in some cases been suggested that it would serve to give the President an undue influence over the Senate, and in others that it would have an opposite tendency, a strong proof that neither suggestion is true. To state the first in its proper form is to refute it. It amounts to this. The President would have an improper influence over the Senate, because the Senate would have the power of restraining him. This is an absurdity in terms. It cannot admit of a doubt that the entire power of appointment would enable him much more effectually to establish a dangerous empire over that body than a mere power of nomination subject to their control. Let us take a view of the converse of the proposition. The Senate would influence the executive. 
as I have had occasion to remark in several other instances, the indistinctness of the objection forbids a precise answer. In what manner is this influence to be exerted? In relation to what objects? The power of influencing a person, in the sense in which it is here used, must imply a power of conferring a benefit upon him. How could the Senate confer a benefit upon the President by the manner of employing their right of negative upon his nominations? If it be said they might sometimes gratify him by an acquiescence in a favourite choice, when public motives might dictate a different conduct, I answer that the instances in which the President could be personally interested in the result would be too few to admit of his being materially affected by the compliances of the Senate. The power which can originate the disposition of honours and emoluments is more likely to attract than be attracted by the power which can merely obstruct their course. If by influencing the President be meant restraining him, this is precisely what must have been intended, and it has been shown that the restraint would be salutary, at the same time that it would not be such as to destroy a single advantage to be looked for from the uncontrolled agency of that magistrate. The right of nomination would produce all the good of that of appointment, and would in a great measure avoid its evils. Upon a comparison of the plan for the appointment of the officers of the proposed government, with that which is established by the Constitution of this State, a decided preference must be given to the former. In that plan the power of nomination is unequivocally vested in the executive, and as there would be a necessity for submitting each nomination to the judgment of an entire branch of the legislature, the circumstances attending an appointment from the mode of conducting it would naturally become matters of notoriety, and the public would be at no loss to determine what part had been performed by the different actors. The blame of a bad nomination would fall upon the President singly and absolutely. The censure of rejecting a good one would lie entirely at the door of the Senate, aggravated by the consideration of their having counteracted the good intentions of the Executive. If an ill appointment should be made, the executive for nominating and the Senate for approving would participate, though in different degrees, in the opprobrium and disgrace. The reverse of all this characterizes the manner of appointment in this state. The council of appointment consists of from three to five persons, of whom the governor is always one. This small body, shut up in a private apartment, impenetrable to the public eye, proceed to the execution of the trust committed to them. It is known that the governor claims the right of nomination, upon the strength of some ambiguous expressions in the Constitution, but it is not known to what extent or in what manner he exercises it, nor upon what occasions he is contradicted or opposed. The censure of a bad appointment, on account of the uncertainty of its author, and for want of a determinate object, has neither poignancy nor duration. And while an unbounded field for cabal and intrigue lies open, all idea of responsibility is lost. The most that the public can know is that the governor claims the right of nomination, that two out of the inconsiderable number of four men can too often be managed without much difficulty, 
that if some of the members of a particular council should happen to be of an uncomplying character, it is frequently not impossible to get rid of their opposition by regulating the times of meeting in such a manner as to render their attendance inconvenient, and that from whatever cause it may proceed, a great number of very improper appointments are from time to time made. Whether a governor of this state avails himself of the ascendant he must necessarily have, in this delicate and important part of the administration, to prefer to offices men who are best qualified for them, or whether he prostitutes that advantage to the advancement of persons whose chief merit is their implicit devotion to his will, and to the support of a despicable and dangerous system of personal influence, are questions which, unfortunately for the community, can only be the subjects of speculation and conjecture. Every mere council of appointment, however constituted, will be a conclave in which cabal and intrigue will have their full scope. Their number, without an unwarrantable increase of expense, cannot be large enough to preclude a facility of combination and as each member will have his friends and connections to provide for, the desire of mutual gratification will beget a scandalous bartering of votes and bargaining for places. The private attachments of one man might easily be satisfied, but to satisfy the private attachments of a dozen or of twenty men would occasion a monopoly of all the principal employments of the government in a few families, and would lead more directly to an aristocracy or an oligarchy than any measure that could be contrived. If, to avoid an accumulation of offices, there was to be a frequent change in the persons who were to compose the council, this would involve the mischiefs of a mutable administration in their full extent. Such a council would also be more liable to executive influence than the Senate, because they would be fewer in number, and would act less immediately under the public inspection. Such a council, in fine, as a substitute for the plan of the convention, would be productive of an increase of expense, a multiplication of the evils which spring from favoritism and intrigue in the distribution of public honors, a decrease of stability in the administration of the government, and a diminution of the security against an undue influence of the executive. And yet such a council has been warmly contended for as an essential amendment to the proposed Constitution. I could not with propriety conclude my observations on the subject of appointments without taking notice of a scheme for which there have appeared some, though but few, advocates. I mean that of uniting the House of Representatives in the power of making them. I shall, however, do little more than mention it, as I cannot imagine that it is likely to gain the countenance of any considerable part of the community. A body so fluctuating, and at the same time so numerous, can never be deemed proper for the exercise of that power. Its unfitness will appear manifest to all, when it is recollected that in half a century it may consist of three or four hundred persons— all the advantages of the stability, both of the executive and of the Senate, would be defeated by this union, and infinite delays and embarrassments would be occasioned. 
The example of most of the states in their local constitutions encourages us to reprobate the idea. The only remaining powers of the executive are comprehended in giving information to Congress of the State of the Union, in recommending to their consideration such measures as he shall judge expedient, in convening them, or either branch, upon extraordinary occasions, in adjourning them when they cannot themselves agree upon the time of adjournment, in receiving ambassadors and other public ministers, in faithfully executing the laws, and in commissioning all the officers of the United States. Except some cavils about the power of convening either house of the legislature, and that of receiving ambassadors, no objection has been made to this class of authorities, nor could they possibly admit of any. It required, indeed, an insatiable avidity for censure to invent exceptions to the parts which have been accepted too. In regard to the power of convening either house of the legislature, I shall barely remark that in respect to the Senate at least, we can readily discover a good reason for it. As this body has a concurrent power with the executive in the article of treaties, it might often be necessary to call it together with a view to this object, when it would be unnecessary and improper to convene the House of Representatives. As to the reception of ambassadors, what I have said in a former paper will furnish a sufficient answer. We have now completed a survey of the structure and powers of the executive department, which, I have endeavored to show, combines, as far as Republican principles will admit, all the requisites to energy. The remaining inquiry is, does it also combine the requisites to safety, in a Republican sense, a due dependence on the people, a due responsibility? The answer to this question has been anticipated in the investigation of its other characteristics and is satisfactorily deducible from these circumstances, from the election of the President once in four years by persons immediately chosen by the people for that purpose, and from his being at all times liable to impeachment, trial, dismission from office, incapacity to serve in any other, and to forfeiture of life and estate by subsequent prosecution in the common course of law. But these precautions, great as they are, are not the only ones which the plan of the Convention has provided in favor of the public security. In the only instances in which the abuse of the executive authority was materially to be feared, the chief magistrate of the United States would, by that plan, be subjected to the control of a branch of the legislative body. What more could be desired by an enlightened and reasonable people? Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 77《Federalist Number 78 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 78, The Judiciary Department. 
From McLean's Edition, New York, Wednesday, May 28, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. We proceed now to an examination of the Judiciary Department of the proposed government. In unfolding the defects of the existing Confederation, the utility and necessity of a federal judicature has been clearly pointed out. It is the less necessary to recapitulate the considerations there urged, as the propriety of the institution in the abstract is not disputed, the only questions which have been raised being relative to the manner of constituting it, and to its extent. To these points, therefore, our observations shall be confined. The manner of constituting it seems to embrace these several objects. First, the mode of appointing the judges. Second, the tenure by which they are to hold their places. Third, the partition of the judiciary authority between different courts and their relations to each other. First, as to the mode of appointing the judges, this is the same with that of appointing the officers of the Union in general, and has been so fully discussed in the last two numbers that nothing can be said here which would not be useless repetition. Second, as to the tenure by which the judges are to hold their places, this chiefly concerns their duration in office, the provisions for their support, the precautions for their responsibility. According to the plan of the Convention, all judges who may be appointed by the United States are to hold their offices during good behavior, which is conformable to the most approved of the state constitutions and among the rest to that of this state. Its propriety has been drawn into question by the adversaries of that plan, is no light symptom of the rage for objection, which disorders their imaginations and judgments, the standard of good behavior for the continuance in office of the judicial magistracy is certainly one of the most valuable of the modern improvements in the practice of government. In a monarchy, it is an excellent barrier to the despotism of the prince. In a republic, it is no less excellent barrier to the encroachments and oppressions of the representative body, and it is the best expedient which can be devised in any government to secure a steady, upright, and impartial administration of the laws. Whoever attentively considers the different departments of power must perceive that, in a government in which they are separated from each other, the judiciary, from the nature of its functions, will always be the least dangerous to the political rights of the Constitution, because it will be least in a capacity to annoy or injure them. The executive not only dispenses the honors, but holds the sword of the community. The legislature not only commands the purse, but prescribes the rules by which the duties and rights of every citizen are to be regulated. The judiciary, on the contrary, has no influence over either the sword or the purse, no direction either of the strength or of the wealth of the society, and can take no active resolution whatever. It may truly be said to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment, and must ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm even for the efficacy of its judgments. This simple view of the matter suggests several important consequences. It proves incontestably that the judiciary is beyond comparison the weakest of the three departments of power. 
that it can never attack with success either of the other two, and that all possible care is requisite to enable it to defend itself against their attacks. It equally proves that though individual oppression may now and then proceed from the courts of justice, the general liberty of the people can never be endangered from that quarter, I mean, so long as the judiciary remains truly distinct from both the legislature and the executive. For I agree that, quote, there is no liberty if the power of judging be not separated from the legislative and executive powers, end quote, and it proves in the last place that as liberty can have nothing to fear from the judiciary alone, but would have everything to fear from its union with either of the other departments, that as all the effects of such a union must ensue from a dependence of the former on the latter, notwithstanding a nominal and apparent separation, that as, from the natural feebleness of the judiciary, it is in continual jeopardy of being overpowered, awed, or influenced by its coordinate branches, and that as nothing can contribute so much to its firmness and independence as permanency in office, this quality may therefore be justly regarded as an indispensable ingredient in its constitution, and, in a great measure, as the citadel of the public justice and the public security. The complete independence of the courts of justice is peculiarly essential in a limited constitution. By a limited constitution, I understand one which contains certain specified exceptions to the legislative authority, such, for instance, as that it shall pass no bills of attainder, no ex post facto laws, and the like. Limitations of this kind can be preserved in practice no other way than through the medium of courts of justice, whose duty it must be to declare all acts contrary to the manifest tenor of the Constitution void. Without this, all the reservations of particular rights or privileges would amount to nothing. Some perplexity respecting the rights of the courts to pronounce legislative acts void, because contrary to the Constitution, has arisen from an imagination that the doctrine would imply a superiority of the judiciary to the legislative power. It is urged that the authority which can declare the acts of another void must necessarily be superior to the one whose acts may be declared void. As this doctrine is of great importance to all the American constitutions, a brief discussion on the ground on which it rests cannot be unacceptable. There is no position which depends on clearer principles than that every act of a delegated authority, contrary to the tenor of the commission under which it is exercised, is void. No legislative act, therefore, contrary to the Constitution, can be valid. To deny this would be to affirm that the deputy is greater than his principal, that the servant is above his master, that the representatives of the people are superior to the people themselves, that men acting by virtue of powers may do not only what their powers do not authorize, but what they forbid." If it may be said that the legislative body are themselves the constitutional judges of their own powers, and that the construction they put upon them is conclusive upon the other departments, it may be answered 
that this cannot be the natural presumption where it is not to be collected from any particular provisions in the constitution it is not otherwise to be supposed that the constitution could intend to enable the representatives of the people to substitute their will to that of their constituents it is far more rational to suppose that the courts were designed to be an intermediate body between the people and the legislature in order among other things to keep the latter within the limits assigned to their authority the interpretation of the laws is the proper and peculiar province of the courts a constitution is in fact and must be regarded by the judges as a fundamental law it therefore belongs to them to ascertain its meaning as well as the meaning of any particular act proceeding from the legislative body if there should happen to be an irreconcilable variance between the two that which has the superior obligation and validity ought of course to be preferred or in other words the constitution ought to be preferred to the statute the intention of the people to the intention of their agents nor does this conclusion by any means suppose a superiority of the judicial to the legislative power it only supposes that the power of the people is superior to both and that where the will of the legislature declared in its statutes stands in opposition to that of the people declared in the constitution the judges ought to be governed by the latter rather than the former they ought to regulate their decisions by the fundamental laws rather than by those which are not fundamental this exercise of judicial discretion in determining between two contradictory laws is exemplified in a familiar instance it not uncommonly happens that there are two statutes existing at one time clashing in whole or in part with each other and neither of them containing any repealing clause or expression in such a case it is the province of the courts to liquidate and fix their meaning and operation so far as they can by any fair construction be reconciled to each other reason and law conspire to dictate that this should be done where this is impracticable it becomes a matter of necessity to give effect to one in exclusion of the other the rule which has obtained in the courts for determining their relative validity is that the last in order of time shall be preferred to the first but this is a mere rule of construction not derived from any positive law but from the nature and reason of the thing it is a rule not enjoined upon the courts by legislative provision but adopted by themselves as consonant to truth and propriety for the direction of their conduct as interpreters of the law they thought it reasonable that between the interfering acts of an equal authority that which was the last indication of its will should have the preference but in regard to the interfering acts of a superior and subordinate authority of an original and derivative power the nature and reason of the thing indicate the converse of that rule as proper to be followed they teach us that the prior act of a superior ought to be preferred to the subsequent act of an inferior and subordinate authority and that accordingly whenever a particular statute contravenes the constitution it will be the duty of the judicial tribunals to adhere to the latter 
and disregard the former. It can be of no weight to say that the courts, on the pretense of a repugnancy, may substitute their own pleasure to the constitutional intentions of the legislature. This might as well happen in the case of two contradictory statutes, or it might as well happen in every adjudication upon any single statute. The courts must declare the sense of the law, and if they should be disposed to exercise will instead of judgment, the consequence would equally be the substitution of their pleasure to that of the legislative body. The observation, if it prove anything, would prove that there ought to be no judges distinct from that body. If, then, the courts of justice are to be considered as the bulwarks of a limited constitution against legislative encroachments, this consideration will afford a strong argument for the permanent tenure of judicial offices, since nothing will contribute so much as this to that independent spirit in the judges which must be essential to the faithful performance of so arduous a duty. This independence of the judges is equally requisite to guard the Constitution and the rights of individuals from the effects of those ill-humours which the arts of designing men, or the influence of particular conjunctures, sometimes disseminate among the people themselves, and which, though they speedily give place to better information and more deliberate reflection, have a tendency in the meantime to occasion dangerous innovations in the government and serious oppressions of the minor party in the community. Though I trust the friends of the proposed Constitution will never concur with its enemies in questioning that fundamental principle of republican government, which admits the right of the people to alter or abolish the established Constitution, whenever they find it inconsistent with their happiness, yet it is not to be inferred from this principle that the representatives of the people, whenever a momentary inclination happens to lay hold of a majority of their constituents incompatible with the provisions in the existing Constitution, would on that account be justifiable in a violation of those provisions, or that the courts would be under a greater obligation to connive at infractions in this shape than when they had proceeded wholly from the cabals of the representative body. Until the people have, by some solemn and authoritative act, annulled or changed the established form, it is binding upon themselves collectively, as well as individually, and no presumption or even knowledge of their sentiments can warrant their representatives in a departure from it prior to such an act. But it is easy to see that it would require an uncommon portion of fortitude in the judges to do their duty as faithful guardians of the Constitution, where legislative invasions of it had been instigated by the major voice of the community. But it is not with a view to infractions of the Constitution only that the independence of the judges may be an essential safeguard against the effects of occasional ill-humours in the society. These sometimes extend no farther than to the injury of the private rights of particular classes of citizens by unjust and partial laws. Here also the firmness of the judicial magistracy is of vast importance in mitigating the severity and confining the operation of such laws. 
it not only serves to moderate the immediate mischiefs of those which may have been passed, but it operates as a check upon the legislative body in passing them, who, perceiving that obstacles to the success of iniquitous intention are to be expected from the scruples of the courts, are in a manner compelled, by the very motives of the injustice they meditate, to qualify their attempts. This is a circumstance calculated to have more influence upon the character of our governments than but few may be aware of. The benefits of the integrity and moderation of the judiciary have already been felt in more states than one, and though they may have displeased those whose sinister expectations they may have disappointed, they must have commanded the esteem and applause of all the virtuous and disinterested. Considerate men of every description ought to prize whatever will tend to beget or fortify that temper in the courts, as no man can be sure that he may not be to-morrow the victim of a spirit of injustice by which he may be a gainer to-day. And every man must now feel that the inevitable tendency of such a spirit is to sap the foundations of public and private confidence, and to introduce in its stead universal distrust and distress. That inflexible and uniform adherence to the rights of the Constitution, and of individuals, which we perceive to be indispensable in the courts of justice, can certainly not be expected from judges who hold their offices by a temporary commission. Periodical appointments, however regulated, or by whomsoever made, would in some way or other be fatal to their necessary independence, if the power of making them was committed either to the executive or legislature, there would be danger of an improper complacence to the branch which possessed it. If to both, there would be an unwillingness to hazard the displeasure of either. If to the people, or to the persons chosen by them for the special purpose, there would be too great a disposition to consult popularity, to justify a reliance that nothing would be consulted but the Constitution and the laws. There is yet a further and a weightier reason for the permanency of the judicial offices, which is deducible from the nature of the qualifications they require. It has been frequently remarked, with great propriety, that a voluminous code of laws is one of the inconveniences necessarily connected with the advantages of a free government. To avoid an arbitrary discretion in the courts, it is indispensable that they should be bound down by strict rules and precedents, which serve to define and point out their duty in every particular case that comes before them, and it will readily be conceived from the variety of controversies which grow out of the folly and wickedness of mankind that the records of those precedents must unavoidably swell to a very considerable bulk, and must demand long and laborious study to acquire a competent knowledge of them. Hence it is that there can be but few men in the society who will have sufficient skill in the laws to qualify them for the stations of judges. And making the proper deductions for the ordinary depravity of human nature, the number must be still smaller of those who unite the requisite integrity with the requisite knowledge. These considerations apprise us that the government can have no great option between fit character, 
and that a temporary duration in office, which would naturally discourage such characters from quitting a lucrative line of practice to accept a seat on the bench, would have a tendency to throw the administration of justice into hands less able and less well qualified to conduct it with utility and dignity. In the present circumstances of this country, and in those in which it is likely to be for a long time to come, the disadvantages on this score would be greater than they may at first sight appear, but it must be confessed that they are far inferior to those which present themselves under the other aspects of the subject. Upon the whole, there can be no room to doubt that the Convention acted wisely in copying from the models of those constitutions which have established good behavior as the tenure of their offices in point of duration, and that so far from being blamable on this account, their plan would have been inexcusably defective if it had wanted this important feature of good government. The experience of Great Britain affords an illustrious comment on the excellence of the institution. Signed Publius. End of Federalist Number 78. Federalist Number 79 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 79. The Judiciary Continued. From McLean's Edition, New York. Wednesday, May 28, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the state of New York. Next to permanency in office, nothing can contribute more to the independence of the judges than a fixed provision for their support. The remark made in relation to the President is equally applicable here. In the general course of human nature, a power over a man's subsistence amounts to a power over his will and we can never hope to see realized in practice the complete separation of the judicial from the legislative power in any system which leaves the former dependent for pecuniary resources on the occasional grants of the latter. The enlightened friends to good government in every state have seen cause to lament the want of precise and explicit precautions in the state constitutions on this head. Some of these, indeed, have declared that permanent salaries should be established for the judges, but the experiment has in some instances shown that such expressions are not sufficiently definite to preclude legislative evasions. Something still more positive and unequivocal has been evinced to be requisite. The plan of the Convention, accordingly, has provided that the judges of the United States shall at stated times receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. This, all circumstances considered, is the most eligible provision that could have been devised. It will readily be understood that the fluctuations in the value of money and in the state of society rendered a fixed rate of compensation in the Constitution inadmissible. 
what might be extravagant today might in half a century become penurious and inadequate it was therefore necessary to leave it to the discretion of the legislature to vary its provisions in conformity to the variations in circumstances yet under such restrictions as to put it out of the power of that body to change the condition of the individual for the worse a man may then be sure of the ground upon which he stands and can never be deterred from his duty by the apprehension of being placed in a less eligible situation the clause which has been quoted combines both advantages the salaries of judicial officers may from time to time be altered as occasion shall require yet so as never to lessen the amount with which any particular judge comes into office in respect to him it will be observed that a difference has been made by the convention between the compensation of the president and of the judges that of the former can neither be increased nor diminished that of the latter can only not be diminished this probably arose from the difference in the duration of the respective offices as the president is to be elected for no more than four years it can rarely happen that an adequate salary fixed at a commencement of that period will not continue to be such to its end but with regard to the judges who if they behave properly will be secured in their places for life it may well happen especially in the early stages of the government that a stipend which would be very sufficient at their first appointment would become too small in the progress of their service this provision for the support of the judges bears every mark of prudence and efficacy and it may be safely affirmed that together with the permanent tenure of their offices it affords a better prospect of their independence than is discoverable in the constitutions of any of the states in regard to their own judges the precautions for their responsibility are comprised in the article respecting impeachments they are liable to be impeached for malconduct by the house of representatives and tried by the senate and if convicted may be dismissed from office and disqualified from holding any other this is the only provision on the point which is consistent with the necessary independence of the judicial character and is the only one which we find in our own constitution in respect to our own judges the want of a provision for removing the judges on account of inability has been a subject of complaint but all considerate men will be sensible that a provision would either not be practised upon or would be more liable to abuse than calculated to answer any good purpose the mensuration of the faculties of the mind has i believe no place in the catalogue of known arts an attempt to fix the boundary between the regions of ability and inability would much oftener give scope to personal and party attachments and enmities than advance the interests of justice or the public good the result except in the case of insanity must for the most part be arbitrary and insanity without any formal or express provision may be safely pronounced to be a virtual disqualification the constitution of new york to avoid investigations that must forever be vague and dangerous has taken a particular age as the criterion of inability 
no man can be a judge beyond sixty. I believe there are few at present who do not disapprove of this provision. There is no station, in relation to which it is less proper than to that of a judge. The deliberating and comparing faculties generally preserve their strength much beyond that period in men who survive it, and when, in addition to this circumstance, we consider how few there are who outlive the season of intellectual vigour, and how improbable it is that any considerable portion of the bench, whether more or less numerous, should be in such a situation at the same time, we shall be ready to conclude that limitations of this sort have little to recommend them. In a republic, where fortunes are not affluent, and pensions not expedient, the dismission of men from stations in which they have served their country long and usefully, on which they depend for subsistence, and from which it will be too late to resort to any other occupation for a livelihood, ought to have some better apology to humanity than is to be found in the imaginary danger of a superannuated bench. Signed Publius End of Federalist Number 79federalist number eighty of the federalist papers this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina the federalist papers by alexander hamilton john jay and james madison federalist number eighty the powers of the judiciary from McLean's edition, New York, Wednesday, May 28, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. To judge with accuracy of the proper extent of the federal judicature, it will be necessary to consider in the first place what are its proper objects. It seems scarcely to admit of controversy that the judiciary authority of the Union ought to extend to these several descriptions of cases. First, to all those which arise out of the laws of the United States, passed in pursuance of their just and constitutional powers of legislation. Second, to all those which concern the execution of the provisions expressly contained in the Articles of Union. Third, to all those in which the United States are a party. Fourth, to all those which involve the peace of the Confederacy, whether they relate to the intercourse between the United States and foreign nations, or to that between the states themselves. Fifth, to all those which originate on the high seas, and are of admiralty or maritime jurisdiction. And lastly, to all those in which the state tribunals cannot be supposed to be impartial and unbiased. The first point depends upon this obvious consideration, that there ought always to be a constitutional method of giving efficacy to constitutional provisions. What, for instance, would avail restrictions on the authority of the state legislatures without some constitutional mode of enforcing the observance of them? The states, by the plan of the convention, are prohibited from doing a variety of things, 
some of which are incompatible with the interests of the Union, and others with the principles of good government. The imposition of duties on imported articles and the emission of paper money are specimens of each kind. No man of sense will believe that such prohibitions would be scrupulously regarded without some effectual power in the government to restrain or correct the infractions of them. This power must either be a direct negative on the state laws, or an authority in the federal courts to overrule such as might be in manifest contravention of the Articles of Union. There is no third course than I can imagine. The latter appears to have been thought by the Convention preferable to the former, and, I presume, will be the most agreeable to the States. As to the second point, it is impossible by any argument or comment to make it clearer than it is in itself. If there are such things as political axioms, the propriety of the judicial power of a government being coextensive with its legislative, may be ranked among the number. The mere necessity of uniformity in the interpretation of the national laws decides the question. Thirteen independent courts of final jurisdiction over the same causes, arising upon the same laws, is a hydra in government from which nothing but contradiction and confusion can proceed. Still less need be said in regard to the third point. Controversies between the nation and its members or citizens can only be properly referred to the national tribunals. Any other plan would be contrary to reason, to precedent, and to decorum. The fourth point rests on this plain proposition, that the peace of the whole ought not to be left at the disposal of a part. The Union will undoubtedly be answerable to foreign powers for the conduct of its members, and the responsibility for an injury ought ever to be accompanied with the faculty of preventing it. As the denial or perversion of justice by the sentences of courts, as well as in any other manner, is with reason classed among the just causes of war, it will follow that the federal judiciary ought to have cognizance of all causes in which the citizens of other countries are concerned. This is not less essential to the preservation of the public faith than to the security of the public tranquillity. A distinction may perhaps be imagined between cases arising upon treaties and the laws of nations and those which may stand merely on the footing of the municipal law. The former kind may be supposed proper for the federal jurisdiction, the latter for that of the states. But it is at least problematical whether an unjust sentence against a foreigner, where the subject of controversy was wholly relative to the lex loci, would not, if unredressed, be an aggression upon his sovereign, as well as one which violated the stipulations of a treaty or the general law of nations and a still greater objection to the distinction, would result from the immense difficulty, if not impossibility, of a practical discrimination between the cases of one complexion and those of the other. So great a proportion of the cases in which foreigners are parties involve national questions that it is by far most safe and most expedient to refer all those in which they are concerned to the national tribunals. 
the power of determining causes between two states, between one state and the citizens of another, and between the citizens of different states, is perhaps not less essential to the peace of the Union than that which has just been examined. History gives us a horrid picture of the dissensions and private wars which distracted and desolated Germany prior to the institution of the Imperial Chamber by Maximilian, towards the close of the fifteenth century, and informs us at the same time of the vast influence of that institution in appeasing the disorders and establishing the tranquillity of the empire. This was a court invested with authority to decide, finally, all differences among the members of the Germanic body. A method of terminating territorial disputes between the states, under the authority of the federal head, was not unattended to even in the imperfect system by which they have been hitherto held together. But there are many other sources, besides interfering claims of boundary, from which bickerings and animosities may spring up among the members of the Union. To some of these we have been witnesses in the course of our past experience. It will readily be conjectured that I allude to the fraudulent laws which have been passed in too many of the states. And though the proposed Constitution establishes particular guards against the repetition of those instances which have heretofore made their appearance, yet it is warrantable to apprehend that the spirit which produced them will assume new shapes, that could not be foreseen nor specifically provided against. Whatever practices may have a tendency to disturb the harmony between the states are proper objects of federal superintendence and control. It may be esteemed the basis of the Union that the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states. And if it be a just principle that every government ought to possess the means of executing its own provisions by its own authority, it will follow that in order to the inviolable maintenance of that equality of privileges and immunities to which the citizens of the Union will be entitled, the national judiciary ought to preside in all cases in which one state or its citizens are opposed to another state or its citizens, to secure the full effect of so fundamental a provision against all evasion and subterfuge, it is necessary that its construction should be committed to that tribunal which, having no local attachments, will be likely to be impartial between the different states and their citizens, and which, owing its official existence to the Union, will never be likely to feel any bias inauspicious to the principles on which it is founded. The fifth point will demand little anima adversion. The most bigoted idolizers of state authority have not thus far shown a disposition to deny the national judiciary the cognizances of maritime causes. These so generally depend on the laws of nations, and so commonly affect the rights of foreigners that they fall within the considerations which are relative to the public peace. The most important part of them are, by the present confederation, submitted to federal jurisdiction. The reasonableness of the agency of the national courts, in cases in which the state tribunals cannot be supposed to be impartial, 
speaks for itself. No man ought certainly to be a judge in his own cause, or in any cause in respect to which he has the least interest or bias. This principle has no inconsiderable weight in designating the federal courts as the proper tribunals for the determination of controversies between different states and their citizens. And it ought to have the same operation in regard to some cases between citizens of the same state. Claims to land under grants of different states, founded upon adverse pretensions of boundary, are of this description. The courts of neither of the granting states could be expected to be unbiased. The laws may have even prejudged the question and tied the courts down to decisions in favor of the grants of the state to which they belonged. And even where this had not been done, it would be natural that the judges, as men, should feel a strong predilection to the claims of their own government. Having thus laid down and discussed the principles which ought to regulate the constitution of the federal judiciary, we will proceed to test, by these principles, the particular powers of which, according to the plan of the Convention, it is to be composed. It is to comprehend all cases in law and equity arising under the Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made, or which shall be made, under their authority, to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands and grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens, and subjects. This constitutes the entire mass of the judicial authority of the Union. Let us now review it in detail. It is then to extend, first, to all cases in law and equity arising under the Constitution and the laws of the United States. This corresponds with the two first classes of causes which have been enumerated as proper for the jurisdiction of the United States. It has been asked, what is meant by cases arising under the Constitution? in contradiction from those arising under the laws of the United States. The difference has been already explained. All the restrictions upon the authority of the state legislatures furnish examples of it. They are not, for instance, to emit paper money, but the interdiction results from the Constitution, and will have no connection with any law of the United States. Should paper money, notwithstanding, be emitted, the controversies concerning it would be cases arising under the Constitution and not the laws of the United States in the ordinary signification of the terms. This may serve as a sample of the whole. It has also been asked what need of the word equity. What equitable causes can grow out of the Constitution and laws of the United States? There is hardly a subject of litigation between individuals which may not involve those ingredients of fraud, accident, trust, or hardship, which would render the matter an object of equitable, rather than of legal, jurisdiction, 
as the distinction is known and established in several of the states. It is the peculiar province, for instance, of a court of equity to relieve against what are called hard bargains. These are contracts in which, though there may have been no direct fraud or deceit, sufficient to invalidate them in a court of law, yet there may have been some undue and unconscionable advantage taken of the necessities or misfortunes of one of the parties, which a court of equity would not tolerate. In such cases, where foreigners were concerned on either side, it would be impossible for the federal judicatories to do justice without an equitable as well as a legal jurisdiction. Agreements to convey lands claimed under the grants of different states may afford another example of the necessity of an equitable jurisdiction in the federal courts. This reasoning may not be so palpable in those states where the formal and technical distinction between law and equity is not maintained, as in this state, where it is exemplified by every day's practice. The judiciary authority of the Union is to extend, second, to treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, and to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls. These belong to the fourth class of the enumerated cases, as they have an evident connection with the preservation of the national peace. Third, to cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction. These form altogether the fifth of the enumerated classes of causes proper for the cognizance of the national courts. Fourth, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, these constitute the third of those classes. Fifth, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states. These belong to the fourth of those classes, and partake in some measure of the nature of the last. Sixth, to cases between the citizens of the same state, claiming lands under grants of different states. These fall within the last class, and are the only instances in which the proposed Constitution directly contemplates the cognizance of disputes between the citizens of the same state. Seventh, to cases between a state and the citizens thereof, and foreign states, citizens, or subjects. These have been already explained to belong to the fourth of the enumerated classes, and have been shown to be in a peculiar manner the proper subjects of the national judicature. From this review of the particular powers of the federal judiciary, as marked out in the Constitution, it appears that they are all conformable to the principles which ought to have governed the structure of that department, and which were necessary to the perfection of the system. If some partial inconveniences should appear to be connected with the incorporation of any of them into the plan, it ought to be recollected that the national legislature will have ample authority to make such exceptions— and to prescribe such regulations as will be calculated to obviate or remove those inconveniences. The possibility of particular mischiefs can never be viewed, by a well-informed mind, as a solid objection to a general principle which is calculated to avoid general mischiefs and to obtain general advantages. Signed, Publius.
End of Federalist Number 80《Federalist 81》of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina.《The Federalist Papers》by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 81. The Judiciary Continued and the Distribution of the Judicial Authority From McLean's Edition, New York, Wednesday, May 28, 1788, Hamilton To the People of the State of New York Let us now return to the partition of the judiciary authority between different courts and their relations to each other. The judicial power of the United States is, by the plan of the Convention, to be vested in one supreme court, and in such inferior courts as the Congress may, from time to time, ordain and establish. That there ought to be one court of supreme and final jurisdiction is a proposition which is not likely to be contested. The reasons for it have been assigned in another place, and are too obvious to need repetition. The only question that seems to have been raised concerning it is, whether it ought to be a distinct body or a branch of the legislature. The same contradiction is observable in regard to this matter which has been remarked in several other cases. The very men who object to the Senate as a court of impeachments, on the ground of an improper intermixture of powers, advocate, by implication at least, the propriety of vesting the ultimate decision of all causes, in the whole or in a part of the legislative body. The arguments, or rather suggestions, upon which this charge is founded are to this effect. Quote, the authority of the proposed Supreme Court of the United States, which is to be a separate and independent body, will be superior to that of the legislature, the power of construing the laws according to the spirit of the Constitution will enable that court to mould them into whatever shape it may think proper, especially as its decisions will not be in any manner subject to the revision or correction of the legislative body. This is as unprecedented as it is dangerous. In Britain, the judicial power in the last resort resides in the House of Lords, which is a branch of the legislature, and this part of the British government has been imitated in the state constitutions in general. The Parliament of Great Britain and the legislatures of the several states can at any time rectify, by law, the exceptionable decisions of their respective courts, but the errors and usurpations of the Supreme Court of the United States will be uncontrollable and remediless. End quote. This, upon examination, will be found to be made up altogether of false reasoning upon misconceived fact. In the first place, there is not a syllable in the plan under consideration which directly empowers the national courts to construe the laws according to the spirit of the Constitution, or which gives them any greater latitude in this respect than may be claimed by the courts of every state. I admit, however, that the Constitution ought to be the standard of construction for the laws, 
and that wherever there is an evident opposition the laws ought to give place to the constitution but this doctrine is not deducible from any circumstance peculiar to the plan of the convention but from the general theory of a limited constitution and as far as it is true is equally applicable to most if not all the state governments there can be no objection therefore on this account to the federal judicature which will not lie against the local judicatures in general and which will not serve to condemn every constitution that attempts to set bounds to legislative discretion but perhaps the force of the objection may be thought to consist in the particular organization of the supreme court in its being composed of a distinct body of magistrates instead of being one of the branches of the legislature as in the government of great britain and that of the state to insist upon this point the authors of the objection must renounce the meaning they have labored to annex to the celebrated maxim requiring a separation of the departments of power it shall nevertheless be conceded to them agreeably to the interpretation given to that maxim in the course of these papers that it is not violated by vesting the ultimate power of judging in a part of the legislative body but though this be not an absolute violation of that excellent rule yet it verges so nearly upon it as on this account alone to be less eligible than the mode preferred by the convention from a body which has even a partial agency in passing bad laws we could rarely expect a disposition to temper and moderate them in the application the same spirit which had operated in making them would be too apt in interpreting them still less could it be expected that men who had infringed the constitution in the character of legislators would be disposed to repair the breach in the character of judges nor is this all every reason which recommends the tenure of good behavior for judicial offices militates against placing the judiciary power in the last resort any body composed of men chosen for a limited period there is an absurdity in referring the determination of causes in, in the first instance to judges of permanent standing in the last to those of a temporary and mutable constitution and there is a still greater absurdity in subjecting the decisions of men selected for their knowledge of the laws acquired by long and laborious study to the revision and control of men who for want of the same advantage cannot but be deficient in that knowledge the members of the legislature will rarely be chosen with a view to those qualifications which fit men for the stations of judges and as on this account there will be great reason to apprehend all the ill consequences of defective information so on account of the natural propensity of such bodies to party divisions there will be no less reason to fear that the pestilential breath of faction may poison the fountains of justice the habit of being continually marshalled on opposite sides will be too apt to stifle the voice both of law and of equity these considerations teach us to applaud the wisdom of those states which have committed the judicial power in the last resort not to a part of the legislature but to distinct and independent bodies of men 
Contrary to the supposition of those who have represented the plan of the convention in this respect as novel and unprecedented, it is but a copy of the constitutions of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, and the preference which has been given to those models is highly to be commended. It is not true, in the second place, that the Parliament of Great Britain, or the legislatures of the particular states, can rectify the exceptionable decisions of their respective courts in any other sense than might be done by a future legislature of the United States. The theory, neither of the British nor the state constitutions, authorizes the revision of a judicial sentence by a legislative act. Nor is there anything in the proposed constitution more than in either of them by which it is forbidden. In the former, as well as in the latter, the impropriety of the thing, on the general principles of law and reason, is the sole obstacle. A legislator, without exceeding its province, cannot reverse a determination once made in a particular case, though it may prescribe a new rule for future cases. This is the principle, and it applies in all its consequences exactly in the same manner and extent to the state governments as to the national government now under consideration. Not the least difference can be pointed out in any view of the subject. It may in the last place be observed that the supposed danger of judiciary encroachments on the legislative authority, which has been upon many occasions reiterated, is in reality a phantom. Particular misconstructions and contraventions of the will of the legislature may now and then happen, but they can never be so extensive as to amount to an inconvenience or in a sensible degree to affect the order of the political system. This may be inferred with certainty from the general nature of the judicial power, from the objects to which it relates, from the manner in which it is exercised, from its comparative weakness, and from its total incapacity to support its usurpations by force. And the inference is greatly fortified by the consideration of the important constitutional check which the power of instituting impeachments in one part of the legislative body, and of determining upon them in the other, would give to that body upon the members of the judicial department. This is alone a complete security. There never can be danger that the judges, by a series of deliberate usurpations on the authority of the legislature, would hazard the united resentment of the body entrusted with it, while this body was possessed of the means of punishing their presumption, by degrading them from their stations. While this ought to remove all apprehensions on the subject, it affords at the same time a cogent argument for constituting the Senate a court for the trial of impeachments. Having now examined, and I trust, removed the objections to the distinct and independent organization of the Supreme Court, I proceed to consider the propriety of the power of constituting inferior courts, and the relations which will subsist between these and the former. The power of it constituting inferior courts is evidently calculated to obviate the necessity of 
having recourse to the Supreme Court in every case of federal cognizance. It is intended to enable the national government to institute or authorize, in each state or district of the United States, a tribunal competent to the determination of matters of national jurisdiction within its limits. But why, it is asked, might not the same purpose have been accomplished by the instrumentality of the state courts? This admits of different answers. Though the fitness and competency of those courts should be allowed in the utmost latitude, yet the substance of the power in question may still be regarded as a necessary part of the plan, if it were only to empower the national legislature to commit to them the cognizance of causes arising out of the national constitution. To confer the power of determining such causes upon the existing courts of the several states would perhaps be as much to constitute tribunals as to create new courts with the like power. But ought not a more direct and explicit provision to have been made in favor of the state courts? There are, in my opinion, substantial reasons against such a provision. The most discerning cannot foresee how far the prevalency of a local spirit may be found to disqualify the local tribunals for the jurisdiction of national causes, whilst every man may discover that courts constituted like those of some of the states would be improper channels of the judicial authority of the Union. State judges, holding their offices during pleasure, or from year to year, would be too little independent to be relied upon for an inflexible execution of the national laws. And if there was a necessity for confiding the original cognizance of causes arising under those laws to them, there would be a correspondent necessity for leaving the door of appeal as wide as possible. In proportion to the grounds of confidence in, or distrust of, the subordinate tribunals ought to be the facility or difficulty of appeals. And well satisfied as I am of the propriety of the appellate, jurisdiction, in the several classes of causes to which it is extended by the plan of the Convention. I should consider everything calculated to give, in practice, an unrestrained course to appeals as a source of public and private inconvenience. I am not sure but that it will be found highly expedient and useful to divide the United States into four or five or half a dozen districts, and to institute a federal court in each district, in lieu of one in every state. The judges of these courts, with the aid of the state judges, may hold circuits for the trial of causes in the several parts of the respective districts. Justice through them may be administered with ease and dispatch, and appeals may be safely circumscribed within a narrow compass. This plan appears to me at present the most eligible of any that could be adopted, and in order to it it is necessary that the power of constituting inferior courts should exist in the full extent in which it is to be found in the proposed Constitution. These reasons seem sufficient to satisfy a candid mind that the want of such a power would have been a great defect in the plan. Let us now examine in what manner the judicial authority is to be distributed between the supreme and inferior courts of the Union. 
the Supreme Court is to be invested with original jurisdiction only in cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party. Public ministers of every class are the immediate representatives of their sovereigns. All questions in which they are concerned are so directly connected with the public peace that, as well for the preservation of this as out of respect to the sovereignties they represent, it is both expedient and proper that such questions should be submitted in the first instance to the highest judicatory of the nation." Though consuls have not in strictness a diplomatic character, yet as they are the public agents of the nations to which they belong, the same observation is in a great measure applicable to them. In cases in which a state might happen to be a party, it would ill-suit its dignity to be turned over to an inferior tribunal. Though it may rather be a digression from the immediate subject of this paper, I shall take occasion to mention here a supposition which has excited some alarm upon very mistaken grounds. It has been suggested that an assignment of the public securities of one state to the citizens of another would enable them to prosecute that state in the federal courts for the amount of those securities, a suggestion which the following considerations prove to be without foundation. It is inherent in the nature of sovereignty not to be amenable to the suit of an individual without its consent. This is the general sense, and the general practice of mankind, and the exemption, as one of the attributes of sovereignty, is now enjoyed by the government of every state in the Union. Unless, therefore, there is a surrender of this immunity in the plan of the Convention, it will remain with the states and the danger intimated must be merely ideal. The circumstances which are necessary to produce an alienation of state sovereignty were discussed in considering the article of taxation, and need not be repeated here. A recurrence to the principles there established will satisfy us that there is no color to pretend that the state governments would, by the adoption of that plan, be divested of the privilege of paying their own debts in their own way, free from every constraint but that which flows from the obligations of good faith. The contracts between a nation and individuals are only binding on the conscience of the sovereign, and have no pretensions to a compulsive force. They confer no right of action, independent of the sovereign will." To what purpose would it be to authorize suits against states for the debts they owe? How could recoveries be enforced? It is evident it could not be done without waging war against the contracting state, and to ascribe to the federal courts, by mere implication, and in destruction of a pre-existing right of the state governments, a power which would involve such a consequence, would be altogether forced and unwarrantable. Let us resume the train of our observations. We have seen that the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court would be confined to two classes of causes, and those of a nature rarely to occur. In all other cases of federal cognizance, the original jurisdiction would appertain to the inferior tribunals, and the Supreme Court would have nothing more than an appellate jurisdiction, 
with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. The propriety of this appellate jurisdiction has been scarcely called in question in regard to matters of law, but the clamours have been loud against it as applied to matters of fact. Some well-intentioned men in this state, deriving their notions from the language and forms which obtain in our courts, have been induced to consider it as an implied supersedure of the trial by jury, in favour of the civil law mode of trial, which prevails in our courts of admiralty, probate, and chancery. A technical sense has been affixed to the term appellate, which, in our law parlance, is commonly used in reference to appeals in the course of the civil law. But if I am not misinformed, the same meaning would not be given to it in any part of New England. There an appeal from one jury to another is familiar both in language and practice, and is even a matter of course, until there have been two verdicts on one side. The word appellate, therefore, will not be understood in the same sense in New England as in New York, which shows the impropriety of a technical interpretation derived from the jurisprudence of any particular state. The expression, taken in the abstract, denotes nothing more than the power of one tribunal to review the proceedings of another, either as to the law, or fact, or both. The mode of doing it may depend on ancient custom or legislative provision, in a new government it must depend on the latter, and may be with or without the aid of a jury, as may be judged advisable. If, therefore, the re-examination of a fact once determined by a jury should in any case be admitted under the proposed Constitution, it may be so regulated as to be done by a second jury, either by remanding the cause to the court below for a second trial of the fact, or by directing an issue immediately out of the Supreme Court. But it does not follow that the re-examination of a fact once ascertained by a jury will be permitted in the Supreme Court. Why may it not be said, with the strictest propriety, when a writ of error is brought from an inferior to a superior court of law in this state, that the latter has jurisdiction of the fact as well as the law? It is true it cannot institute a new inquiry concerning the fact, but it takes cognizance of it as it appears upon the record, and pronounces the law arising upon it. This is jurisdiction of both fact and law, nor is it even possible to separate them. Though the common law courts of this state ascertain disputed facts by a jury, yet they unquestionably have jurisdiction of both fact and law, and accordingly, when the former is agreed in the pleadings, they have no recourse to a jury, but proceed at once to judgment. I contend, therefore, on this ground, that the expressions appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, do not necessarily imply a re-examination in the Supreme Court of facts decided by juries in the inferior courts. The following train of ideas may well be imagined to have influenced the Convention in relation to this particular provision. The appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, it may have been argued, will extend to causes determinable in different modes, 
some in the course of the common law, others in the course of the civil law. In the former, the revision of the law only will be, generally speaking, the proper province of the Supreme Court. In the latter, the re-examination of the fact is agreeable to usage, and in some cases, of which prize causes are an example, might be essential to the preservation of the public peace. It is therefore necessary that the appellate jurisdiction should, in certain cases, extend in the broadest sense to matters of fact. It will not answer to make an express exception of cases which have been originally tried by a jury, because in the courts of some of the states all causes are tried in this mode. And such an exception would preclude the revision of matters of fact, as well where it might be proper, as where it might be improper. To avoid all inconveniences, it will be safest to declare generally that the Supreme Court shall possess appellate jurisdiction both as to law and fact, and that this jurisdiction shall be subject to such exceptions and regulations as the national legislature may prescribe. This will enable the government to modify it in such a manner as will best answer the ends of public justice and security. This view of the matter, at any rate, puts it out of all doubt that the supposed abolition of the trial by jury, by the operation of this provision, is fallacious and untrue. The legislature of the United States would certainly have full power to provide that in appeals to the Supreme Court there should be no re-examination of facts where they have been tried in the original causes by juries. This would certainly be an authorized exception, but if, for the reason already intimated, it should be thought too extensive, it might be qualified with a limitation to such causes only as are determinable like common law in that mode of trial. The amount of the observations hitherto made on the authority of the Judicial Department is this, that it has been carefully restricted to those causes which are manifestly proper for the cognizance of the national judicature, that in the partition of this authority a very small portion of original jurisdiction has been preserved to the Supreme Court, and the rest consigned to the subordinate tribunals, that the Supreme Court will possess an appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, in all the cases referred to them, both subject to any exceptions and regulations which may be thought advisable. That this appellate jurisdiction does in no case abolish the trial by jury, and that an ordinary degree of prudence and integrity in the national councils will ensure us solid advantages from the establishment of the proposed judiciary, without exposing us to any of the inconveniences which have been predicted from that source. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist number 81. Federalist number 82 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. 
Federalist Number 82. The Judiciary Continued. From McLean's Edition, New York, Wednesday, May 28, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. The erection of a new government, whatever care or wisdom may distinguish the work, cannot fail to originate questions of intricacy and nicety, and these may, in a particular manner, be expected to flow from the establishment of a constitution founded upon the total or partial incorporation of a number of distinct sovereignties. Tis time only that can mature and perfect so compound a system, can liquidate the meaning of all the parts, and can adjust them to each other in a harmonious and consistent whole. Such questions, accordingly, have arisen upon the plan proposed by the Convention, and particularly concerning the Judiciary Department. The principle of these respect the situation of the state courts in regard to those causes which are to be submitted to federal jurisdiction. Is this to be exclusive, or are those courts to possess a concurrent jurisdiction? If the latter, in what relation will they stand to the national tribunals? These are inquiries which we meet with in the mouths of men of sense, and which are certainly entitled to attention. The principles established in a former paper teach us that the states will retain all pre-existing authorities which may not be exclusively delegated to the federal head, and that this exclusive delegation can only exist in one of three cases, where an exclusive authority is in express terms granted to the Union, or where a particular authority is granted to the Union and the exercise of a like authority is prohibited to the states, or where an authority is granted to the Union with which a similar authority in the states would be utterly incompatible. Though these principles may not apply with the same force to the judiciary as to the legislative power, yet I am inclined to think that they are in the main just with respect to the former, as well as the latter, and under this impression I shall lay it down as a rule that the state courts will retain their jurisdiction they now have, unless it appears to be taken away in one of the enumerated modes. The only thing in the proposed Constitution which wears the appearance of confining the causes of federal cognizance to the federal courts is contained in this passage, quote, the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one supreme court, and in such inferior courts as the Congress shall from time to time ordain and establish. End quote. This might either be construed to signify that the supreme and subordinate courts of the Union should alone have the power of deciding those causes to which their authority is to extend, or simply to denote that the organs of the national judiciary should be one supreme court and as many subordinate courts as congress should think proper to appoint or in other words that the united states should exercise the judicial power with which they are to be invested through one supreme tribunal and a certain number of inferior ones to be instituted by them the first excludes the last admits the concurrent jurisdiction of the state tribunals, and as the first would amount to an alienation of state power by implication, the last appears to me the most natural and the most defensible construction. 
but this doctrine of concurrent jurisdiction is only clearly applicable to those descriptions of causes of which the state courts have previous cognizance. It is not equally evident in relation to cases which may grow out of, and be peculiar to, the Constitution to be established, for not to allow the state courts a right of jurisdiction in such cases can hardly be considered as the abridgment of a pre-existing authority. I mean not, therefore, to contend that the United States, in the course of legislation upon the objects entrusted to their direction, may not commit the decision of causes arising upon a particular regulation to the federal courts solely, if such a measure should be deemed expedient. But I hold that the state courts will be divested of no part of their primitive jurisdiction further than may relate to an appeal, and I am even of opinion that in every case in which they were not expressly excluded by the future acts of the national legislature, they will of course take cognizance of the causes to which those acts may give birth. This I infer from the nature of judiciary power, and from the general genius of the system. The judiciary power of every government looks beyond its own local or municipal laws, and in civil cases lays hold of all subjects of litigation between parties within its jurisdiction, though the causes of dispute are relative to the laws of the most distant part of the globe. Those of Japan, not less than of New York, may furnish the objects of legal discussion to our courts, when in addition to this we consider the state governments and the national governments, as they truly are, in the light of kindred systems and as parts of one whole, the inference seems to be conclusive that the state courts would have a concurrent jurisdiction in all cases arising under the laws of the Union where it was not expressly prohibited. Here another question occurs. What relation would subsist between the national and state courts in these instances of concurrent jurisdiction? I answer that an appeal would certainly lie from the latter to the Supreme Court of the United States. The Constitution in direct terms gives an appellate jurisdiction to the Supreme Court in all the enumerated cases of federal cognizance in which it is not to have an original one, without a single expression to confine its operation to the inferior federal courts. The objects of appeal, not the tribunals from which it is to be made, are alone contemplated. From this circumstance, and from the reason of the thing, it ought to be construed to extend to the state tribunals. Either this must be the case, or the local courts must be excluded from a concurrent jurisdiction in matters of national concern, else the judiciary authority of the Union may be eluded at the pleasure of every plaintiff or prosecutor. Neither of these consequences ought, without evident necessity, to be involved. The latter would be entirely inadmissible, as it would defeat some of the most important and avowed purposes of the proposed government, and would essentially embarrass its measures. Nor do I perceive any foundation for such a supposition. Agreeably to the remark already made, the national and state systems are to be regarded as one whole. The courts of the latter will, of course, be natural auxiliaries to the execution of the laws of the Union, 
and an appeal from them will as naturally lie to that tribunal which is destined to unite and assimilate the principles of national justice and the rules of national decisions. The evident aim of the plan of the Convention is that all the causes of the specified classes shall, for weighty public reasons, receive their original or final determination in the courts of the Union. To confine, therefore, the general expressions giving appellate jurisdiction to the Supreme Court to appeals from the subordinate federal courts, instead of allowing their extension to the state courts, would be to abridge the latitude of the terms in subversion of the intent, contrary to every sound rule of interpretation. But could an appeal be made to lie from the state courts to the subordinate federal judicatories? This is another of the questions which have been raised, and of greater difficulty than the former. The following considerations countenance the affirmative. The plan of the Convention, in the first place, authorizes the National Legislature quote, to constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. Quote. It declares, in the next place, that quote, the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as Congress shall ordain and establish. End quote. and it then proceeds to enumerate the cases to which this judicial power should extend. It afterwards divides the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court into original and appellate, but gives no definition of that of the subordinate courts. The only outlines described for them are that they shall be inferior to the Supreme Court, and that they shall not exceed the specified limits of the federal judiciary. Whether their authority shall be original or appellate or both is not declared. All this seems to be left to the discretion of the legislature, and this being the case, I perceive at present no impediment to the establishment of an appeal from the state courts to the subordinate national tribunals, and many advantages attending the power of doing it may be imagined. It would diminish the motives to the multiplication of federal courts, and would admit of arrangements calculated to contract the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. The state tribunals may then be left with a more entire charge of federal causes, and appeals, in most cases in which they may be deemed proper, instead of being carried to the Supreme Court, may be made to lie from the state courts to district courts of the Union. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist number 82. Part 1 of Federalist 83 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist number 83. The Judiciary Continued in Relation to Trial by Jury. From McLean's Edition, New York, Wednesday, May 28, 1788, Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. The objection to the plan of the Convention, which has met with most success in this State, 
and perhaps in several of the other states, is that relative to the want of a constitutional provision for the trial by jury in civil cases. The disingenuous form in which this objection is usually stated has been repeatedly adverted to and exposed, but continues to be pursued in all the conversations and writings of the opponents of the plan. The mere silence of the Constitution in regard to civil causes is represented as an abolition of the trial by jury, and the declamations to which it has afforded a pretext are artfully calculated to induce a persuasion that this pretended abolition is complete and universal, extending not only to every species of civil, but even to criminal causes. To argue with respect to the latter would, however, be as vain and fruitless as to attempt the serious proof of the existence of matter, or to demonstrate any of those propositions which, by their own internal evidence, force conviction when expressed in language adapted to convey their meaning. With regard to civil causes, subtleties almost too contemptible for refutation have been employed to countenance the surmise that a thing which is only not provided for is entirely abolished. Every man of discernment must at once perceive the wide difference between silence and abolition. But as the inventors of this fallacy have attempted to support it by certain legal maxims of interpretation, which they have perverted from their true meaning, it may not be wholly useless to explore the ground they have taken. The maxims on which they rely are of this nature. A specification of particulars is an exclusion of generals, or the expression of one thing is the exclusion of another. Hence, say they, as the Constitution has established the trial by jury in criminal cases and is silent in respect to civil, this silence is an implied prohibition of trial by jury in regard to the latter. The rules of legal interpretation are rules of common sense, adopted by the courts in the construction of the laws. The true test, therefore, of a just application of them is its conformity to the source from which they are derived. This being the case, let me ask if it is consistent with common sense to suppose that a provision obliging the legislative power to commit the trial of criminal cases to juries is a privation of its right to authorize or permit that mode of trial in other cases. Is it natural to suppose that a command to do one thing is a prohibition to the doing of another, which there was a previous power to do, and which is not incompatible with the thing commanded to be done? If such a supposition would be unnatural and unreasonable, it cannot be rational to maintain that an injunction of the trial by jury in certain cases is an interdiction of it in others. A power to constitute courts is a power to prescribe the mode of trial, and consequently, if nothing was said in the Constitution on the subject of juries, the legislature would be at liberty either to adopt that institution or to let it alone. This discretion, in regard to criminal causes, is abridged by the express injunction of trial by jury in all such cases. 
but it is, of course, left at large in relation to civil causes, there being a total silence on this head. The specification of an obligation to try all criminal causes in a particular mode excludes indeed the obligation or necessity of employing the same mode in civil causes, but does not abridge the power of the legislature to exercise that mode if it should be thought proper. The pretense, therefore, that the national legislature would not be at full liberty to submit all the civil causes of federal cognizance to the determination of juries is a pretense destitute of all just foundation. From these observations, this conclusion results that the trial by jury in civil cases would not be abolished, and that the use attempted to be made of the maxims which have been quoted is contrary to reason and common sense, and therefore not admissible. Even if these maxims had a precise technical sense, corresponding with the idea of those who employ them upon the present occasion, which, however, is not the case, they would still be inapplicable to a constitution of government. In relation to such a subject, the natural and obvious sense of its provisions, apart from any technical rules, is the true criterion of construction. Having now seen that the maxims relied upon will not bear the use made of them, let us endeavour to ascertain their proper use and true meaning. This will be best done by examples. The plan of the Convention declares that the power of Congress, or, in other words, of the National Legislature, shall extend to certain enumerated cases. This specification of particulars evidently excludes all pretension to a general legislative authority, because an affirmative grant of special powers would be absurd, as well as useless, if a general authority was intended. In like manner, the judicial authority of the federal judicatures is declared by the Constitution to comprehend certain cases particularly specified. The expression of those cases marks the precise limits, beyond which the federal courts cannot extend their jurisdiction, because the objects of their cognizance being enumerated, the specification would be nugatory if it did not exclude all ideas of more extensive authority. These examples are sufficient to elucidate the maxims which have been mentioned, and to designate the manner in which they should be used. But that there may be no misapprehensions upon this subject, I shall add one case more, to demonstrate the proper use of these maxims and the abuse which has been made of them. Let us suppose that by the laws of this state a married woman was incapable of conveying her estate, and that the legislature, considering this as an evil, should enact that she might dispose of her property by deed executed in the presence of a magistrate. In such a case, there can be no doubt but the specification would amount to an exclusion of any other mode of conveyance, because the woman having no previous power to alienate her property, the specification determines the particular mode which she is, for that purpose, to avail herself of. But let us further suppose that in a subsequent part of the same act it should be declared that no woman should dispose of any estate of a determinate value 
without the consent of three of her nearest relations, signified by their signing the deed. Could it be inferred from this regulation that a married woman might not procure the approbation of her relations to a deed for conveying property of inferior value? The position is too absurd to merit a refutation, and yet this is precisely the position which those must establish who contend that the trial by juries in civil cases is abolished, because it is expressly provided for in cases of a criminal nature. From these observations it must appear unquestionably true that trial by jury is in no case abolished by the proposed Constitution, and it is equally true that in those controversies between individuals in which the great body of the people are likely to be interested, that institution will remain precisely in the same situation in which it is placed by the state constitutions, and will be in no degree altered or influenced by the adoption of the plan under consideration. The foundation of this assertion is that the national judiciary will have no cognizance of them, and of course they will remain determinable as heretofore by the state courts only, and in the manner which the state constitutions and laws prescribe. All land causes, except where claims under the grants of different states come into question, and all other controversies between the citizens of the same state, unless where they depend upon positive violations of the Articles of Union, by acts of the state legislatures, will belong exclusively to the jurisdiction of the state tribunals. Add to this that admiralty causes, and almost all those which are of equity jurisdiction, are determinable under their own government without the intervention of a jury, and the inference from the whole will be that this institution, as it exists with us at present, cannot possibly be affected to any great extent by the proposed alteration in our system of government. The friends and adversaries of the plan of the Convention, if they agree in nothing else, concur at least in the value they set upon the trial by jury, or if there is any difference between them it consists in this— the former regarded as a valuable safeguard to liberty, the latter represented as the very palladium of free government. For my own part, the more the operation of the institution has fallen under my observation, the more reason I have discovered for holding it in high estimation, and it would be altogether superfluous to examine to what extent it deserves to be esteemed useful or essential in a representative republic or how much more merit it may be entitled to, as a defence against the oppressions of an hereditary monarch, than as a barrier to the tyranny of popular magistrates in a popular government. Discussions of this kind would be more curious than beneficial, as all are satisfied of the utility of the institution, and of its friendly aspect to liberty." but I must acknowledge that I cannot readily discern the inseparable connection between the existence of liberty and the trial by jury in civil cases. Arbitrary impeachments, arbitrary methods of prosecuting pretended offences, and arbitrary punishments upon arbitrary convictions 
have ever appeared to me to be the great engines of judicial despotism, and these have all relation to criminal proceedings. The trial by jury in criminal cases, aided by the Habeas Corpus Act, seems therefore to be alone concerned in the question, and both of these are provided for, in the most ample manner, in the plan of the Convention. It has been observed that trial by jury is a safeguard against an oppressive exercise of the power of taxation. This observation deserves to be canvassed. It is evident that it can have no influence upon the legislature in regard to the amount of taxes to be laid, to the objects upon which they are to be imposed, or to the rule by which they are to be apportioned. If it can have any influence, therefore, it must be upon the mode of collection, and the conduct of the officers entrusted with the execution of the revenue laws. As to the mode of collection in this state, under our own constitution, the trial by jury is in most cases out of use. The taxes are usually levied by the more summary proceeding of distress and sale, as in cases of rent. And it is acknowledged on all hands that this is essential to the efficacy of the revenue laws. The dilatory course of a trial at law to recover the taxes imposed on individuals would neither suit the exigencies of the public nor promote the convenience of the citizens. It would often occasion an accumulation of costs, more burdensome than the original sum of the tax to be levied. As to the conduct of the officers of the revenue, the provision in favor of trial by jury in criminal cases will afford the security aimed at. Willful abuses of a public authority to the oppression of the subject and every species of official extortion are offences against the government for which the persons who commit them may be indicted and punished according to the circumstances of the case. The excellence of the trial by jury in civil cases appears to depend on circumstances foreign to the preservation of liberty. The strongest argument in its favour is that it is a security against corruption. As there is always more time and better opportunity to tamper with the standing body of magistrates than with a jury summoned for the occasion, there is room to suppose that a corrupt influence would more easily find its way to the former than to the latter. The force of this consideration is, however, diminished by others. The sheriff, who is the summoner of ordinary juries, and the clerks of courts, who have the nomination of special juries, are themselves standing officers, and, acting individually, may be supposed more accessible to the touch of corruption than the judges, who are a collective body. It is not difficult to see that it would be in the power of those officers to select jurors who would serve the purpose of the party as well as a corrupted bench. In the next place, it may fairly be supposed that there would be less difficulty in gaining some of the jurors promiscuously taken from the public mass than in gaining men who had been chosen by the government for their probity and good character. But making every deduction for these considerations, the trial by jury must still be a valuable check upon corruption. 
it greatly multiplies the impediments to its success. As matters now stand, it would be necessary to corrupt both court and jury, for where the jury have gone evidently wrong, the court will generally grant a new trial, and it would be in most cases of little use to practice upon the jury unless the court could be likewise gained. Here, then, is a double security, and it will readily be perceived that this complicated agency tends to preserve the purity of both institutions. By increasing the obstacles to success, it discourages attempts to seduce the integrity of either. The temptations to prostitution which the judges might have to surmount must certainly be much fewer, while the cooperation of a jury is necessary, than they might be if they had themselves the exclusive determination of all causes. Notwithstanding, therefore, the doubts I have expressed as to the essentiality of trial by jury in civil cases to liberty, I admit that it is, in most cases, under proper regulations, an excellent method of determining questions of property, and that on this account alone it would be entitled to a constitutional provision in its favour if it were possible to fix the limits within which it ought to be comprehended. There is, however, in all cases, great difficulty in this, and men not blinded by enthusiasm must be sensible that in a federal government, which is a composition of societies whose ideas and institutions in relation to the matter materially vary from each other, that difficulty must be not a little augmented. For my own part, at every new view I take of the subject, I become more convinced of the reality of the obstacles which, we are authoritatively informed, prevented the insertion of a provision on this head in the plan of the Convention. The great difference between the limits of the jury trial in different states is not generally understood, and as it must have considerable influence on the sentence we ought to pass upon the omission, complained of in regard to this point, an explanation of it is necessary. In this state, our judicial establishments resemble more nearly than in any other those of Great Britain. We have courts of common law, courts of probates, analogous in certain matters to the spiritual courts in England, a court of admiralty, and a court of chancery. In the courts of common law only, the trial by jury prevails, and this with some exceptions. In all the others, a single judge presides, and proceeds in general either according to the course of the canon or civil law, without the aid of a jury. In New Jersey, there is a court of chancery which proceeds like ours, but neither courts of admiralty nor of probates, in the sense in which these last are established with us. In that state, the courts of common law have the cognizance of those causes which with us are determinable in the courts of admiralty and of probates, and of course the jury trial is more extensive in New Jersey than in New York. In Pennsylvania, this is perhaps still more the case, for there is no court of chancery in that state, and its common law courts have equity jurisdiction. It has a court of admiralty, but none of probates, at least on the plan of ours. Delaware has in these respects imitated Pennsylvania. 
Maryland approaches more nearly to New York, as does also Virginia, except that the latter has a plurality of chancellors. North Carolina bears most affinity to Pennsylvania, South Carolina to Virginia. I believe, however, that in some of those states which have the distinct courts of admiralty, the causes depending in them are triable by juries. In Georgia there are none but common law courts, and an appeal, of course, lies from the verdict of one jury to another, which is called a special jury, and for which a particular mode of appointment is marked out. In Connecticut they have no distinct courts either of chancery or of admiralty, and their courts of probate have no jurisdiction of causes. Their common law courts have admiralty and, to a certain extent, equity jurisdiction. In cases of importance, their general assembly is the only court of chancery. In Connecticut, therefore, the trial by jury extends in practice further than in any other state yet mentioned. Rhode Island is, I believe, in this particular, pretty much in the situation of Connecticut. Massachusetts and New Hampshire, in regard to the blending of law, equity, and admiralty jurisdictions, are in a similar predicament. In the four eastern states, the trial by jury not only stands upon a broader foundation than in the other states, but it is attended with a peculiarity unknown in its full extent to any of them. There is an appeal, of course, from one jury to another, till there have been two verdicts out of three on one side. End of Federalist Number 83, Part A Federalist 83, Part B, of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 83. Part B. From this sketch it appears that there is a material diversity, as well in the modification as in the extent of the institution of trial by jury in civil cases in the several states, and from this fact these obvious reflections flow. First, that no general rule could have been fixed upon by the Convention which would have corresponded with the circumstances of all the states, and secondly, that more or at least as much might have been hazarded by taking the system of any one state for a standard as by omitting a provision altogether and leaving the matter, as has been done, to legislative regulation. The propositions which have been made for supplying the omission have rather served to illustrate than to obviate the difficulty of the thing. The minority of Pennsylvania have proposed this mode of expression for the purpose, trial by jury shall be as heretofore, and this, I maintain, would be senseless and nugatory. The United States, in their united or collective capacity, are the object to which all general provisions in the Constitution must necessarily be construed to refer. Now it is evident that though trial by jury, with various limitations, is known in each state individually, 
yet in the United States as such, it is at this time altogether unknown, because the present federal government has no judiciary power whatever, and consequently there is no proper antecedent or previous establishment to which the term heretofore could relate. It would therefore be destitute of a precise meaning and inoperative from its uncertainty. As on the one hand the form of the provision would not fulfill the intent of its proposers, so on the other, if I apprehend that intent rightly, it would be in itself inexpedient. I presume it to be that causes in the federal courts should be tried by jury, if, in the state where the courts sat, that mode of trial would obtain in a similar case in the state courts. That is to say, admiralty causes should be tried in Connecticut by a jury, in New York without one. The capricious operation of so dissimilar a method of trial in the same cases under the same government is of itself sufficient to indispose every well-regulated judgment towards it. Whether the cause should be tried with or without a jury would depend in a great number of cases on the accidental situation of the court and parties. But this is not, in my estimation, the greatest objection. I feel a deep and deliberate conviction that there are many cases in which the trial by jury is an ineligible one. I think it so particularly in cases which concern the public peace with foreign nations, that is, in most cases where the question turns wholly on the laws of nations. Of this nature, among others, are all prize causes. Juries cannot be supposed competent to investigations that require a thorough knowledge of the laws and usages of nations, and they will sometimes be under the influence of impressions which will not suffer them to pay sufficient regard to those considerations of public policy which ought to guide their inquiries. There would, of course, be always danger that the rights of other nations might be infringed by their decisions, so as to afford occasions of reprisal and war. Though the proper province of juries be to determine matters of fact, yet in most cases legal consequences are complicated with fact in such a manner as to render a separation impracticable. It will add great weight to this remark, in relation to prize causes, to mention that the method of determining them has been thought worthy of particular regulation in various treaties between different powers of Europe, and that, pursuant to such treaties, they are determinable in Great Britain in the last resort before the king himself, in his privy council, where the fact, as well as the law, undergoes a re-examination. This alone demonstrates the impolicy of inserting a fundamental provision in the Constitution which would make the state systems a standard for the national government in the article under consideration, and the danger of encumbering the government with any constitutional provisions, the propriety of which is not indisputable. My convictions are equally strong that great advantages result from the separation of the equity from the law jurisdiction, and that the causes which belong to the former would be improperly committed to juries. The great and primary use of a court of equity is to give relief in extraordinary cases 
which are exceptions to general rules. To unite the jurisdiction of such cases with the ordinary jurisdiction must have a tendency to unsettle the general rules, and to subject every case that arises to a special determination, while a separation of the one from the other has the contrary effect of rendering one a sentinel over the other, and of keeping each within the expedient limits. Besides this, the circumstances that constitute cases proper for courts of equity are in many instances so nice and intricate that they are incompatible with the genius of trials by jury. They require often such long, deliberate, and critical investigation as would be impracticable to men called from their occupations and obliged to decide before they were permitted to return to them. The simplicity and expedition which form the distinguishing characters of this mode of trial require that the matter to be decided should be reduced to some single and obvious point, while the litigations usual in chancery frequently comprehend a long train of minute and independent particulars. It is true that the separation of the equity from the legal jurisdiction is peculiar to the English system of jurisprudence, which is the model that has been followed in several of the states. But it is equally true that the trial by jury has been unknown in every case in which they have been united, and the separation is essential to the preservation of that institution in its pristine purity. The nature of a court of equity will readily permit the extension of its jurisdiction to matters of law. But it is not a little to be suspected that the attempt to extend the jurisdiction of the courts of law to matters of equity will not only be unproductive of the advantages which may be derived from courts of chancery, on the plan upon which they are established in this state, but will tend gradually to change the nature of the courts of law, and to undermine the trial by jury, by introducing questions too complicated for a decision in that mode. These appear to be conclusive reasons against incorporating the systems of all the states, in the formation of the national judiciary, according to what may be conjectured to have been the attempt of the Pennsylvania minority. Let us now examine how far the proposition of Massachusetts is calculated to remedy the supposed defect. It is in this form. In civil actions between citizens of different states, every issue of fact, arising in actions at common law, may be tried by a jury if the parties, or either of them, request it. This, at best, is a proposition confined to one description of causes, and the inference is fair, either that the Massachusetts Convention considered that as the only class of federal causes in which the trial by jury would be proper, or that if desirous of a more extensive provision, they found it impracticable to devise one which would properly answer the end. If the first, the omission of a regulation respecting so partial an object can never be considered as a material imperfection in the system. In the last, it affords a strong corroboration of the extreme difficulty of the thing. But this is not all. If we advert to the observations already made respecting the courts that subsist in the several states of the Union, 
and the different powers exercised by them, it will appear that there are no expressions more vague and indeterminate than those which have been employed to characterize that species of causes which it is intended shall be entitled to a trial by jury. In this state, the boundaries between actions at common law and actions of equitable jurisdiction are ascertained in conformity to the rules which prevail in England upon that subject. In many of the other states the boundaries are less precise. In some of them every cause is to be tried in a court of common law, and upon that foundation every action may be considered as an action at common law, to be determined by a jury, if the parties, or either of them, choose it. Hence the same irregularity and confusion would be introduced by a compliance with this proposition, that I have already noticed as resulting from the regulation proposed by the Pennsylvania minority. In one state a cause would receive its determination from a jury, if the parties, or either of them, requested it, but in another state a cause exactly similar to the other must be decided without the intervention of a jury, because the state judicatories varied as to common law jurisdiction. It is obvious, therefore, that the Massachusetts proposition upon this subject cannot operate as a general regulation, until some uniform plan, with respect to the limits of common law and equitable jurisdictions, shall be adopted by the different states. To devise a plan of that kind is a task arduous in itself, and which it would require much time and reflection to mature. It would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to suggest any general regulation that would be acceptable to all the states in the Union, or that would perfectly quadrate with the several state institutions. It may be asked, why could not a reference have been made to the Constitution of this state, taking that, which is allowed by me to be a good one, as a standard for the United States? I answer that it is not very probable the other states would entertain the same opinion of our institutions as we do ourselves. It is natural to suppose that they are hitherto more attached to their own, and that each would struggle for the preference. If the plan of taking one state as a model for the whole had been thought of in the Convention, it is to be presumed that the adoption of it in that body would have been rendered difficult by the predilection of each representation in favor of its own government, and it must be uncertain which of the states would have been taken as the model. It has been shown that many of them would be improper ones, and I leave it to conjecture whether, under all circumstances, it is most likely that New York, or some other state, would have been preferred. But admit that a judicious selection could have been effected in the Convention, still there would have been great danger of jealousy and disgust in the other states, at the partiality which had been shown to the institutions of one. The enemies of the plan would have been furnished with a fine pretext for raising a host of local prejudices against it, which perhaps might have hazarded in no inconsiderable degree its final establishment. To avoid the embarrassments of a definition of the cases which the trial by jury ought to embrace, it is sometimes suggested by men of enthusiastic tempers 
that a provision might have been inserted for establishing it in all cases whatsoever. For this, I believe, no precedent is to be found in any member of the Union, and the considerations which have been stated in discussing the proposition of the minority of Pennsylvania must satisfy every sober mind that the establishment of the trial by jury in all cases would have been an unpardonable error in the plan. In short, the more it is considered, the more arduous will appear the task of fashioning a provision in such a form as not to express too little to answer the purpose, or too much to be advisable, or which might not have opened other sources of opposition to the great and essential object of introducing a firm national government. I cannot but persuade myself, on the other hand, that the different lights in which the subject have been placed in the course of these observations will go far towards removing in candid minds the apprehensions they may have entertained on the point. They have tended to show that the security of liberty is materially concerned only in the trial by jury in criminal cases, which is provided for in the most ample manner in the plan of the Convention that even in far the greatest proportion of civil cases, and those in which the great body of the community is interested, that mode of trial will remain in its full force, as established in the state constitutions, untouched and unaffected by the plan of the convention, that it is in no case abolished by that plan, and that there are great, if not insurmountable, difficulties in the way of making any precise and proper provision for it in a constitution for the United States. The best judges of the matter will be the least anxious for a constitutional establishment of the trial by jury in civil cases, and will be the most ready to admit that the changes which are continually happening in the affairs of society may render a different mode of determining questions of property preferable in many cases in which that mode of trial now prevails. For my part, I acknowledge myself to be convinced that even in this state it might be advantageously extended to some cases to which it does not at present apply, and might as advantageously be abridged in others. It is conceded by all reasonable men that it ought not to obtain in all cases. The examples of innovations which contract its ancient limits, as well in these states as in Great Britain, afford a strong presumption that its former extent has been found inconvenient, and give room to suppose that future experience may discover the propriety and utility of other exceptions. I suspect it to be impossible in the nature of the thing to fix the salutary point at which the operation of the institution ought to stop, and this is with me a strong argument for leaving the matter to the discretion of the legislature. This is now clearly understood to be the case in Great Britain, and it is equally so in the state of Connecticut, and yet it may be safely affirmed that more numerous encroachments have been made upon the trial by jury in this state since the Revolution, though provided for by a positive article of our Constitution, than has happened in the same time either in Connecticut or Great Britain. 
it may be added that these encroachments have generally originated with the men who endeavour to persuade the people they are the warmest defenders of popular liberty but who have rarely suffered constitutional obstacles to arrest them in a favourite career the truth is that the general genius of a government is all that can be substantially relied upon for permanent effects particular provisions though not altogether useless have far less virtue and efficacy than are commonly ascribed to them and the want of them will never be with men of sound discernment a decisive objection to any plan which exhibits the leading characters of a good government it certainly sounds not a little harsh and extraordinary to affirm that there is no security for liberty in a constitution which expressly establishes the trial by jury in criminal cases because it does not do it in civil also while it is a notorious fact that connecticut which has always been regarded as the most popular state in the union can boast of no constitutional provision for either signed publius end of federalist number 83 part b federalist number 84 of the federalist papers this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 84. Certain General and Miscellaneous Objections to the Constitution Considered and Answered. From McLean's edition, New York, Wednesday, May 28, 1788, Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. In the course of the foregoing review of the Constitution, I have taken notice of and endeavored to answer most of the objections which have appeared against it. There, however, remain a few which either did not fall naturally under any particular head or were forgotten in their proper places. These shall now be discussed, but as the subject has been drawn into great length, I shall so far consult brevity as to comprise all my observations on these miscellaneous points in a single paper. The most considerable of the remaining objections is that the plan of the Convention contains no Bill of Rights. Among other answers given to this, it has been upon different occasions remarked that the constitutions of several of the states are in a similar predicament. I add that New York is of the number, and yet the opposers of the new system in this state, who profess an unlimited admiration for its constitution, are among the most intemperate partisans of a Bill of Rights. To justify their zeal in this matter, they allege two things. One is that, though the constitution of new york has no bill of rights prefixed to it yet it contains in the body of it various provisions in favour of particular privileges and rights which in substance amount to the same thing the other is that the constitution adopts in their full extent the common and statute law of great britain by which many other rights not expressed in it are equally secured 
To the first I answer that the Constitution proposed by the Convention contains, as well as the Constitution of this State, a number of such provisions. Independent of those which relate to the structure of the government, we find the following. Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States, but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Section 9 of the same article, Clause 2. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended, unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. Clause 3. No bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed. Clause 7. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, except of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Article 3, Section 2, Clause 3. The trial of all crimes, except in cases of impeachment, shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes shall have been committed, but when not committed within any state, the trial should be at such place or places as the Congress may by law have directed. Section 3 of the same article. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason, unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act, or on confession in open court. And Clause 3 of the same section. The Congress shall have power to declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attainted. It may well be a question whether these are not upon the whole of equal importance with any which are to be found in the Constitution of this State. The establishment of the writ of habeas corpus, the prohibition of ex post facto laws, and titles of nobility, to which we have no corresponding provision in our Constitution, are perhaps greater securities to liberty and republicanism than any it contains. The creation of crimes after the commission of the fact, or, in other words, the subjecting of men to punishment for things which, when they were done, were breaches of no law, and the practice of arbitrary imprisonments, have been in all ages the favorite and most formidable instruments of tyranny. The observations of the judicious Blackstone in reference to the latter are well worthy of recital. Quote, to bereave a man of life, says he, or by violence to confiscate his estate, without accusation or trial, would be so gross and notorious an act of despotism, as must at once convey the alarm of tyranny throughout the whole nation, but confinement of the person, by secretly hurrying him to jail, where his sufferings are unknown or forgotten, is a less public, a less striking, 
and therefore a more dangerous engine of arbitrary government. End quote. And as a remedy for this fatal evil, he is everywhere peculiarly emphatical in his encomiums on the Habeas Corpus Act, which in one place he calls the bulwark of the British Constitution. Nothing need be said to illustrate the importance of the prohibition of titles of nobility. This may truly be denominated the cornerstone of republican government, for so long as they are excluded, there can never be serious danger that the government will be any other than that of the people. To the second, that is, to the pretended establishment of the common and state law by the Constitution, I answer that they are expressly made subject to such alterations and provisions as the legislature shall from time to time make concerning the same. They are therefore at any moment liable to repeal by the ordinary legislative power, and of course have no constitutional sanction. The only use of the declaration was to recognize the ancient law, and to remove doubts which might have been occasioned by the revolution. This consequently can be considered as no part of a declaration of rights, which under our constitutions must be intended as limitations of the power of the government itself. It has been several times truly remarked that bills of rights are, in their origin, stipulations between kings and their subjects, abridgments of prerogative in favor of privilege, reservations of rights not surrendered to the prince. Such was Magna Carta, obtained by the barons, sword in hand, from King John. Such were the subsequent confirmations of that charter by succeeding princes. Such was the petition of right assented to by Charles I in the beginning of his reign. Such also was the declaration of right presented by the Lords and Commons to the Prince of Orange in 1688, and afterwards thrown into the form of an act of Parliament called the Bill of Rights. It is evident, therefore, that, according to their primitive signification, they have no application to constitutions professedly founded upon the power of the people, and executed by their immediate representatives and servants. Here, in strictness, the people surrender nothing, and as they retain everything, they have no need of particular reservations. We, the people of the United States, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Here is a better recognition of popular rights than volumes of those aphorisms which make the principal figure in several of our state bills of rights, and which would sound much better in a treatise of ethics than in a constitution of government. But a minute detail of particular rights is certainly far less applicable to a constitution like that under consideration, which is merely intended to regulate the general political interests of the nation, than to a constitution which has the regulation of every species of personal and private concerns. If, therefore, the loud clamours against the plan of the Convention on this score are well-founded, no epithets of reprobation will be too strong for the constitution of this state. But the truth is, 
that both of them contain all which, in relation to their objects, is reasonably to be desired. I go further and affirm that bills of rights, in the sense and to the extent in which they are contended for, are not only unnecessary in the proposed Constitution, but would even be dangerous. They would contain various exceptions to powers not granted, and on this very account would afford a colourable pretext to claim more than were granted. For why declare that things shall not be done, which there is no power to do? Why, for instance, should it be said that the liberty of the press shall not be restrained, when no power is given by which restrictions may be imposed? I will not contend that such a provision would confer a regulating power, but it is evident that it would furnish, to men disposed to usurp, a plausible pretense for claiming that power. They might urge with a semblance of reason that the Constitution ought not to be charged with the absurdity of providing against the abuse of an authority which was not given, and that the provision against restraining the liberty of the press afforded a clear implication that a power to prescribe proper regulations concerning it was intended to be vested in the national government. This may serve as a specimen of the numerous handles which would be given to the doctrine of constructive powers by the indulgence of an injudicious zeal for bills of rights. On the subject of the liberty of the press, as much as has been said, I cannot forbear adding a remark or two. In the first place, I observe, that there is not a syllable concerning it in the constitution of this state. In the next, I contend, that whatever has been said about it in that of any other state amounts to nothing. What signifies a declaration that the liberty of the press shall be inviolably preserved? What is the liberty of the press? Who can give it any definition which would not leave the utmost latitude for evasion? I hold it to be impracticable, and from this I infer that its security, whatever fine declarations may be inserted in any constitution respecting it, must altogether depend on public opinion, and on the general spirit of the people and of the government. And here, after all, as is intimated upon another occasion, must we seek for the only solid basis of all our rights. There remains but one other view of this matter to conclude the point. The truth is, after all the declamations we have heard, that the Constitution is itself in every rational sense, and to every useful purpose, a Bill of Rights. The several bills of rights in Great Britain form its constitution, and conversely the constitution of each state is its bill of rights, and the proposed constitution, if adopted, will be the bill of rights of the Union. Is it one object of a bill of rights to declare and specify the political privileges of the citizens in the structure and administration of the government? This is done in the most ample and precise manner in the plan of the Convention, comprehending various precautions for the public security, which are not to be found in any of the State Constitutions. Is another object of a Bill of Rights to define certain immunities and modes of proceeding, which are relative to personal and private concerns? 
this we have seen has also been attended to in a variety of cases in the same plan adverting therefore to the substantial meaning of a bill of rights it is absurd to allege that it is not to be found in the work of the convention it may be said that it does not go far enough though it will not be easy to make this appear but it can with no propriety be contended that there is no such thing it certainly must be immaterial what mode is observed as to the order of declaring the rights of the citizens if they are to be found in any part of the instrument which establishes the government and hence it must be apparent that much of what has been said on that subject rests merely on verbal and nominal distinctions entirely foreign from the substance of the thing another objection which has been made and which from the frequency of its repetition it is to be presumed is relied upon is of this nature Quote, it is improper say the objectors to confer such large powers as are proposed upon the national government because the seat of that government must of necessity be too remote from many of the states to admit of a proper knowledge on the part of the constituent of the conduct of the representative body End quote. this argument if it proves anything proves that there ought to be no general government whatever for the powers which it seems to be agreed on all hands ought to be vested in the union cannot be safely entrusted to a body which is not under every requisite control but there are satisfactory reasons to show that the objection is in reality not well founded there is in most of the arguments which relate to distance a palpable illusion of the imagination what are the sources of information by which the people in montgomery county must regulate their judgment of the conduct of their representatives in the state legislature of personal observation they can have no benefit this is confined to the citizens on the spot they must therefore depend on the information of intelligent men in whom they confide and how must these men obtain their information evidently from the complexion of public measures from the public prints from correspondences with their representatives and with other persons who reside at the place of their deliberations this does not apply to montgomery county only but to all the counties at any considerable distance from the seat of government it is equally evident that the same sources of information would be open to the people in relation to the conduct of their representatives in the general government and the impediments to a prompt communication which distance may be supposed to create will be overbalanced by the effects of the vigilance of the state governments the executive and legislative bodies of each state will be so many sentinels over the persons employed in every department of the national administration and as it will be in their power to adopt and pursue a regular and effectual system of intelligence they can never be at a loss to know the behavior of those who represent their constituents in the national councils and can readily communicate the same knowledge to the people their disposition to apprise the community of whatever may prejudice its interests from another quarter may be relied upon if it were only from the rivalship of power and we may conclude with the fullest assurance 
that the people, through that channel, will be better informed of the conduct of their national representatives than they can be by any means they now possess of that of their state representatives. It ought also to be remembered that the citizens who inhabit the country at and near the seat of government will, in all questions that affect the general liberty and prosperity, have the same interest with those who are at a distance, and that they will stand ready to sound the alarm when necessary, and to point out the actors in any pernicious project. The public papers will be expeditious messengers of intelligence to the most remote inhabitants of the Union. Among the many curious objections which have appeared against the proposed Constitution, the most extraordinary and the least colourable is derived from the want of some provision respecting the debts due to the United States. This has been represented as a tacit relinquishment of those debts, and as a wicked contrivance to screen public defaulters. The newspapers have teemed with the most inflammatory railings on this head, yet there is nothing clearer than that the suggestion is entirely void of foundation, the offspring of extreme ignorance or extreme dishonesty. In addition to the remarks I have made upon the subject in another place, I shall only observe that, as it is a plain dictate of common sense, so it is also an established doctrine of political law, that states neither lose any of their rights nor are discharged from any of their obligations by a change in the form of their civil government. The last objection of any consequence, which I at present recollect, turns upon the article of expense. If it were even true that the adoption of the proposed government would occasion a considerable increase of expense, it would be an objection that ought to have no weight against the plan. The great bulk of the citizens of America are with reason convinced that union is the basis of their political happiness. Men of sense of all parties now, with few exceptions, agree that it cannot be preserved under the present system, nor without radical alterations, that new and extensive powers ought to be granted to the national head, and that these require a different organization of the federal government, a single body being an unsafe depository of such ample authorities. In conceding all this, the question of expense must be given up, for it is impossible, with any degree of safety, to narrow the foundation upon which the system is to stand. The two branches of the legislature are, in the first instance, to consist of only sixty-five persons, which is the same number of which Congress, under the existing Confederation, may be composed. It is true that this number is intended to be increased, but this is to keep pace with the progress of the population and resources of the country. It is evident that a less number would, even in the first instance, have been unsafe, and that a continuance of the present number would, in a more advanced stage of population, be a very inadequate representation of the people. Whence is the dreaded augmentation of expense to spring? One source indicated is the multiplication of offices under the new government. Let us examine this a little. 
it is evident that the principal departments of the administration under the present government are the same which will be required under the new. There are now a Secretary of War, a Secretary of Foreign Affairs, a Secretary for Domestic Affairs, a Board of Treasury, consisting of three persons, a Treasurer, Assistants, Clerks, etc. These officers are indispensable under any system, and will suffice under the new as well as the old. As to ambassadors and other ministers and agents in foreign countries, the proposed Constitution can make no other difference than to render their characters, where they reside, more respectable, and their services more useful. As to persons to be employed in the collection of the revenues, it is unquestionably true that these will form a very considerable addition to the number of federal officers, but it will not follow that this will occasion an increase of public expense. It will be in most cases nothing more than an exchange of state for national officers. In the collection of all duties, for instance, the persons employed will be wholly of the latter description. The states individually will stand in no need of any for this purpose. What difference can it make in point of expense to pay officers of the customs appointed by the state or by the United States? There is no good reason to suppose that either the number or the salaries of the latter will be greater than those of the former. Where, then, are we to seek for those additional articles of expense which are to swell the account to the enormous size that has been represented to us? The chief item which occurs to me respects the support of the judges of the United States. I do not add the President, because there is now a President of Congress, whose expenses may not be far, if anything, short of those which will be incurred on account of the President of the United States. The support of the judges will clearly be an extra expense, but to what extent will depend on the particular plan which may be adopted in regard to this matter. But upon no reasonable plan can it amount to a sum which will be an object of material consequence. Let us now see what there is to counterbalance any extra expense that may attend the establishment of the proposed government. The first thing which presents itself is that a great part of the business which now keeps Congress sitting through the year will be transacted by the President. Even the management of foreign negotiations will naturally devolve upon him, according to general principles concerted with the Senate, and subject to their final concurrence. Hence, it is evident that a portion of the year will suffice for the session of both the Senate and the House of Representatives. We may suppose about a fourth for the latter, and a third, or perhaps half, for the former. The extra business of treaties and appointments may give this extra occupation to the Senate. From this circumstance we may infer that, until the House of Representatives shall be increased greatly beyond its present number, there will be a considerable saving of expense from the difference between the constant session of the present and the temporary session of the future Congress. But there is another circumstance of great importance in the view of economy. The business of the United States has hitherto occupied the state legislatures as well as Congress. The latter has made requisitions which the former have had to provide for. 
Hence it has happened that the sessions of the state legislatures have been protracted greatly beyond what was necessary for the execution of the mere local business of the states. More than half their time has been frequently employed in matters which related to the United States. Now the members who compose the legislatures of the several states amount to two thousand and upwards, which number has hitherto performed what under the new system will be done in the first instance by sixty-five persons, and probably at no future period by above a fourth or fifth of that number. The Congress under the proposed government will do all the business of the United States themselves, without the intervention of the state legislatures, who thenceforth will have only to attend to the affairs of their particular states, and will not have to sit in any proportion as long as they have heretofore done. This difference in the time of the sessions of the state legislatures will be clear gain, and will alone form an article of saving, which may be regarded as an equivalent for any additional objects of expense that may be occasioned by the adoption of the new system. The result from these observations is that the sources of additional expense from the establishment of the proposed Constitution are much fewer than may have been imagined, that they are counterbalanced by considerable objects of saving, and that while it is questionable on which side the scale will preponderate, it is certain that a government less expensive would be incompetent to the purposes of the Union. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 84federalist 85 the final paper of the federalist papers this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina the federalist papers by alexander hamilton john jay and james madison federalist number 85 Concluding Remarks From McLean's Edition, New York, Wednesday, May 28, 1788 Hamilton To the people of the State of New York According to the formal division of the subject of these papers, announced in my first number, there would appear still to remain for discussion two points, the analogy of the proposed government to your own state constitution, and the additional security which its adoption will afford to republican government, to liberty, and to property. But these heads have been so fully anticipated and exhausted in the progress of the work that it would now scarcely be possible to do anything more than repeat, in a more dilated form, what has been heretofore said, which the advanced stage of the question, and the time already spent upon it, conspire to forbid. It is remarkable that the resemblance of the plan of the Convention to the act which organizes the government of this state holds, not less with regard to many of the supposed defects, than to the real excellence of the former. Among the pretended defects are the re-eligibility of the executive, the want of a council, the omission of a formal bill of rights, the omission of a provision respecting the liberty of the press, 
these and several others which have been noted in the course of our inquiries are as much chargeable on the existing constitution of this state as on the one proposed for the union and a man must have slender pretensions to consistency who can rail at the latter for imperfections which he finds no difficulty in excusing in the former nor indeed can there be a better proof of the insincerity and affectation of some of the zealous adversaries of the plan of the convention among us who profess to be the devoted admirers of the government under which they live than the fury with which they have attacked that plan for matters in regard to which our own constitution is equally or perhaps more vulnerable the additional securities to republican government to liberty and to property to be derived from the adoption of the plan under consideration consist chiefly in the restraints which the preservation of the union will oppose on local factions and insurrections and on the ambition of powerful individuals in single states who may acquire credit and influence enough from leaders and favorites to become the despots of the people in the diminution of the opportunities to foreign intrigue which the dissolution of the confederacy would invite and facilitate in the prevention of extensive military establishments which could not fail to grow out of wars between the states in a disunited situation in the express guarantee of a republican form of government to each in the absolute and universal exclusion of titles of nobility and in the precautions against the repetition of those practices on the part of the state governments which have undermined the foundation of property and credit have planted mutual distrust in the breasts of all classes of citizens and have occasioned an almost universal prostration of morals thus have i fellow-citizens executed the task i had assigned to myself with what success your conduct must determine i trust at least you will admit that i have not failed in the assurance i gave you respecting the spirit with which my endeavors should be conducted i have addressed myself purely to your judgments and have studiously avoided those asperities which are too apt to disgrace political disputants of all parties and which have been not a little provoked by the language and conduct of the opponents of the constitution the charge of a conspiracy against the liberties of the people which has been indiscriminately brought against the advocates of the plan has something in it too wanton and too malignant not to excite the indignation of every man who feels in his own bosom a refutation of the calumny the perpetual changes which have been rung upon the wealthy the well-born and the great have been such as to inspire the disgust of all sensible men and the unwarrantable concealments and misrepresentations which have been in various ways practised to keep the truth from the public eye have been of a nature to demand the reprobation of all honest men it is not impossible that these circumstances may have occasionally betrayed me into intemperances of expression which i did not intend it is certain that i have frequently felt a struggle between sensibility and moderation and if the former has in some instances prevailed it must be my excuse that it has been neither often nor much let us now pause and ask ourselves whether in the course of these papers 
the proposed constitution has not been satisfactorily vindicated from the aspersions thrown upon it and whether it has not been shown to be worthy of the public approbation and necessary to the public safety and prosperity every man is bound to answer these questions to himself according to the best of his conscience and understanding and to act agreeably to the genuine and sober dictates of his judgment this is a duty from which nothing can give him a dispensation tis one that he is called upon nay constrained by all the obligations that form the bands of society to discharge sincerely and honestly no partial motive no particular interest no pride of opinion no temporary passion or prejudice will justify to himself to his country or to his posterity an improper election of the part he is to act let him beware of an obstinate adherence to party let him reflect that the object upon which he is to decide is not a particular interest of the community but the very existence of the nation and let him remember that a majority of america has already given its sanction to the plan which he is to approve or reject i shall not dissemble that i feel an entire confidence in the arguments which recommend the proposed system to your adoption and that i am unable to discern any real force in those by which it has been opposed i am persuaded that it is the best which our political situation habits and opinions will admit and superior to any the revolution has produced concessions on the part of the friends of the plan that it has not a claim to absolute perfection have afforded matter of no small triumph to its enemies why say they should we adopt an imperfect thing why not amend it and make it perfect before it is irrevocably established this may be plausible enough but it is only plausible in the first place i remark that the extent of these concessions has been greatly exaggerated they have been stated as amounting to an admission that the plan is radically defective and that without material alterations the rights and the interests of the community cannot be safely confided to it this as far as i have understood the meaning of those who make the concessions is an entire perversion of their sense no advocate of the measure can be found who will not declare as his sentiment that the system though it may not be perfect in every part is upon the whole a good one is the best that the present views and circumstances of the country will permit and is such a one as promises every species of security which a reasonable people can desire i answer in the next place that i should esteem it the extreme of imprudence to prolong the precarious state of our national affairs and to expose the union to the jeopardy of successive experiments in the chimerical pursuit of a perfect plan i never expect to see a perfect work from imperfect man the result of the deliberations of all collective bodies must necessarily be a compound as well of the errors and prejudices as of the good sense and wisdom of the individuals of whom they are composed the compacts which are to embrace thirteen distinct states in a common bond of amity and union 
must as necessarily be a compromise of as many dissimilar interests and inclinations. How can perfection spring from such materials? The reasons assigned in an excellent little pamphlet lately published in this city are unanswerable to show the utter improbability of assembling a new convention, under circumstances in any degree so favourable to a happy issue as those in which the late convention met, deliberated, and concluded. I will not repeat the arguments there used, as I presume the production itself has had an extensive circulation. It is certainly well worthy the perusal of every friend to his country. There is, however, one point of light in which the subject of amendments still remains to be considered, and in which it has not yet been exhibited to public view. I cannot resolve to conclude without first taking a survey of it in this aspect. It appears to me susceptible of absolute demonstration that it will be far more easy to obtain subsequent than previous amendments to the Constitution. The moment an alteration is made in the present plan, it becomes, to the purpose of adoption, a new one, and must undergo a new decision of each state. To its complete establishment throughout the Union, it will therefore require the concurrence of thirteen states. If, on the contrary, the Constitution proposed should once be ratified by all the states as it stands, alterations in it may at any time be effected by nine states. Here, then, the chances are as thirteen to nine in favour of subsequent amendment, rather than of the original adoption of an entire system. This is not all. Every constitution for the United States must inevitably consist of a great variety of particulars, in which thirteen independent states are to be accommodated in their interests or opinions of interest. We may, of course, expect to see, in any body of men charged with its original formation, very different combinations of the parts upon different points. Many of those who form a majority on one question may become the minority on a second, and an association dissimilar to either may constitute the majority on a third. Hence the necessity of moulding and arranging all the particulars which are to compose the whole, in such a manner as to satisfy all the parties to the compact, and hence, also, an immense multiplication of difficulties and casualties in obtaining the collective assent to a final act. The degree of that multiplication must evidently be in a ratio to the number of particulars and the number of parties. But every amendment to the Constitution, if once established, would be a single proposition, and might be brought forward singly. There would then be no necessity for management or compromise in relation to any other point, no giving nor taking. The will of the requisite number would at once bring the matter to a decisive issue, and consequently, whenever nine, or rather ten states, were united in the desire of a particular amendment, that amendment must infallibly take place. There can, therefore, be no comparison between the facility of effecting an amendment and that of establishing in the first instance a complete constitution. In opposition to the probability of subsequent amendments, 
it has been urged that the persons delegated to the administration of the national government will always be disinclined to yield up any portion of the authority of which they were once possessed. For my own part, I acknowledge a thorough conviction that any amendments which may, upon mature consideration, be thought useful, will be applicable to the organization of the government, not to the mass of its powers, and on this account alone, I think there is no weight in the observation just stated. I also think there is little weight in it on another account. The intrinsic difficulty of governing thirteen states, at any rate, independent of calculations upon an ordinary degree of public spirit and integrity, will, in my opinion, constantly impose on the national rulers the necessity of a spirit of accommodation to the reasonable expectations of their constituents. But there is yet a further consideration which proves beyond the possibility of a doubt that the observation is futile. It is this that the national rulers, whenever nine states concur, will have no option upon the subject. By the fifth article of the plan, the Congress will be obliged, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the states, which at present amount to nine, to call a convention for proposing amendments which shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of the Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the states, or by conventions in three-fourths thereof. The words of this article are peremptory. The Congress shall call a convention. Nothing in this particular is left to the discretion of that body, and of consequence all the declamation about the disinclination to a change vanishes in air. Nor, however difficult it may be supposed to unite two-thirds or three-fourths of the state legislatures in amendments which may affect local interests, can there be any room to apprehend any such difficulty in a union on points which are merely relative to the general liberty or security of the people? We may safely rely on the disposition of the state legislatures to erect barriers against the encroachments of the national authority. If the foregoing argument is a fallacy, certain it is that I am myself deceived by it, for it is, in my conception, one of those rare instances in which a political truth can be brought to the test of a mathematical demonstration. Those who see the matter in the same light with me, however zealous they may be for amendments, must agree in the propriety of a previous adoption as the most direct road to their own object. The zeal for attempts to amend, prior to the establishment of the Constitution, must abate in every man who is ready to accede to the truth of the following observations of a writer equally solid and ingenious. To balance a large state or society, says he, whether monarchical or republican on general laws, is a work of so great difficulty that no human genius, however comprehensive, is able by the mere dint of reason and reflection to effect it. The judgments of many must unite in the work, experience must guide their labor, time must bring it to perfection, and the feeling of inconveniences must correct the mistakes which they inevitably fall into in their first trials and experiments. 
These judicious reflections contained a lesson of moderation to all the sincere lovers of the Union, and ought to put them upon their guard against hazarding anarchy, civil war, a perpetual alienation of the states from each other, and perhaps the military despotism of a victorious demagogue, in the pursuit of what they are not likely to obtain, but from time and experience. It may be in me a defect of political fortitude, but I acknowledge that I cannot entertain an equal tranquillity with those who affect to treat the dangers of a longer continuance in our present situation as imaginary. A nation, without a national government, is, in my view, an awful spectacle. The establishment of a constitution, in time of profound peace, by the voluntary consent of a whole people, is a prodigy to the completion of which I look forward with trembling anxiety. I can reconcile it to no rules of prudence to let go the hold we now have, in so arduous an enterprise, upon seven out of the thirteen states, and after having passed over so considerable a part of the ground, to recommence the course. I dread the more the consequences of new attempts, because I know that powerful individuals, in this and in other states, are enemies to a general national government in every possible shape. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 85 End of The Federalist Papers Thank you for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.